Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. So how's the college responding to this incident? We're having a um, a race forum. And what's that? A forum. On race. So we can discuss the incident and the surrounding issues of race. So the usual lip service. Uh, No comment. In the aftermath of police killings of black men and women and amidst renewed calls in Congress to consider a reparations commission, American institutions of all kinds have looked to their pasts and presence to understand their relationships to racism. That reckoning continues at colleges and universities, many of which have direct connections to the history of slavery. Jeffrey Brown has our report. It's part of our Race Matters series and our arts and culture coverage, Canvas. On the campus of the University of Virginia, a new memorial to the thousands of enslaved people who helped build the school and then worked there. Craftsmen, construction workers, cooks, domestic servants. Some of their names are known. Most, more than 3,000, remain anonymous, honored by so-called memory marks in the stone. And this site was picked intentionally because it was visible to and gestures to the community. Historian Kurt Vondack helped lead the effort to uncover his school's past. This story has to be visible on our landscape in a way that the casual visitor um, will understand when they visit here. And we have to acknowledge, right, the humanity, the skill, the life, the labor of the enslaved and do it in a way that responds to current community concerns. And I think our memorial really does a fantastic job of that. Um, but it's, it's not an end. It's a beginning. It's a story often hidden in plain sight, as in this 19th century engraving intended to capture the campus in all its glory. There on a balcony, an enslaved woman holding the child of a professor. The campus was designed and founded in 1819 by Thomas Jefferson, drafter of the Declaration of Independence and slave owner, the embodiment of the contradictions of U.S. history. The American Academy, writ large, not just UVA, um, has been built on right money from the slave trade, uh, built by enslaved people. It has a very long uh, financial and human history tied up in this story that uh, universities in some way are now coming to terms with. It's not just in the South. Higher education's look within began early in the 2000s at several schools, including Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. What can we do to suggest ways of being in the world that improve upon everybody's life? 
Then-President Ruth Simmons, the first African-American to serve as president of an Ivy League school, and herself the great-granddaughter of slaves, says when she looked for the history, she found little. And so uh, what's the reason for that? I think slavery was an uncomfortable topic for people for so long uh, in this country. And um, rather than deal with the uh, issues involving um, slavery, people simply deleted the reference. Um, and if you delete it long enough, of course, what happens is that there is this systematic forgetting uh, of the history. As documented in a landmark 2006 report, the history was all around including lists of slaves trafficked in ships owned by John Brown, one of the school's founders. His former home across the street from the president's residence. That's the thing, is that we were surrounded by the evidence of um, Brown's relationship to slavery at one time, and yet we chose to ignore it, and we... Um, basically built a new narrative around it. With a more painful past revealed, Brown took a number of steps, including creating a new Center for the Study of Slavery and Justice to further explore the history through scholarship and exhibitions. And it commissioned a public artwork titled Slave Memorial by prominent black artist Martin Perrier. To me, it always seemed the most important element of it was the truth-telling. So if, if, you, if one wants to atone for, for lying for so many decades, centuries even, the clear indication is that you should atone for that by telling the truth. And so the report to me was the most important thing. And it has lived long, actually. And I think it has been borne out by what followed because that report has become the document that so many other institutions have used um, to uh, follow that same, that same course. A consortium founded at the University of Virginia, University Studying Slavery, has grown to more than 70 members from five countries, in some cases moving beyond slavery times to study Jim Crow-era racism and injustices against Native Americans, their lands taken for use by Western colleges. Importantly, historically, black colleges and universities are also looking at their histories, and in some cases partnering with majority white schools on research and other projects. Ruth Simmons is now president of one prominent HBCU, Prairie View A&M University in Texas. One of the things that we are committed to doing is making sure that these matters enter curricula um, and that people stop being afraid, afraid of the truth, afraid to teach um, what really transpired. But after a year of protests in the wake of the police killings of George Floyd and other black men and women, universities, like other institutions, face renewed calls to go beyond research and teaching. This is the recurring question, what now? I think the what now is there's no simple solution, but it's a, 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 an awareness and a consciousness and a working through of the problem. Leslie Harris, an historian now at Northwestern University, has studied both the past and contemporary efforts. The movement for direct monetary reparations has grown, but remains controversial. Harris and others propose another way in. 
I want to remind people that the root of that word is repair. How do we repair? How do we make whole relationships and communities that have been driven apart? And that can come in many different ways. Colleges are often the largest landowners and employers in their cities, with direct influence on housing costs and jobs. They employ their own police and security forces, in some cases exacerbating tensions with the surrounding community. We can, I could do the history all day of how we got here in terms of policing, how we got here in terms of real estate. The question, though, then becomes, and this is definitely a question for higher education institutions, it is not simply about studying and understanding and then putting the book on the shelf and say, phew, now I understand. It is about how do we move forward differently. Study and remember what happened and seek repair. At a pivot point for American institutions of all kinds, scholars and activists are saying universities have a unique role to play. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Jeffrey Brown. Continue to ask the questions, continue to seek the answers. The Half Has Never Been Told, Slavery and the Making of American Capitalism, by Edward E. Baptist. School kids have read a few famous accounts of slavery for generations, stories of people like Frederick Douglass and Harriet Jacobs. These are often tales of resistance, rebellion, and daring escapes. Well, the writer Clint Smith has been thinking about the many stories we don't tell that have been lost or buried. His new piece for The Atlantic is titled, We Mourn for All We Do Not Know. Clint Smith, welcome to All Things Considered. It's a pleasure to be here. Begin by telling us just some of the reasons that there are so few accounts from enslaved and recently freed people. Yeah, I mean, the reality is that the vast majority of enslaved people were illiterate. Uh, they couldn't read. They couldn't write. And it's not because they were, you know, obviously not inherently and capable of doing so, the reason is because they were specifically and legally prevented from doing so. There were specific punishments um, in place, often often lethal consequences, um, if someone attempted to learn to read and write. Uh, and, and so as a result, the only way that people could tell their stories uh, was if they some, somehow subverted the system and learned to read and write, or in a context in which they, they may have escaped and often partnered with uh, abolitionists, but we don't have the stories uh, and words from the vast majority of enslaved people simply because uh, they weren't allowed to, to share them. There is a trove of stories that come from a program called the Federal Writers Project. Tell us about what that project set out to do. Yeah, so the Federal Writers Project is, is really this remarkable treasure trove of, of information. Uh, it was a project done between 1936 and 1938 uh, as part of the New Deal. The U.S. government realized that there were many different groups of Americans who had lived through these profoundly important and consequential moments in American history. And part of what they wanted to do was ensure that they got firsthand accounts of these stories before these people passed away. And one of those groups, one of the biggest groups in this context, were formerly enslaved people. So they had about 2,300 formerly enslaved people who ended up being interviewed for this project over the course of two or three years and over the course of 16 to 17 states. And so we have over 2,000 first-person accounts of people who had been children right before abolition took place. And it's just this really important set of stories that don't often get the attention that they deserve. So you've spent months going through these accounts. You've read these stories. And what have you learned? How has it changed your own perception of history? Part of what I think is so important is to, to lift up and hear the voices of those who are ostensibly ordinary people. 
And, and by saying they're ordinary, I don't mean that they are not remarkable and exceptional in their own right. But I think to, to have accounts of the sort of daily, quotidian, brutal nature of enslavement from people who did not escape, from people who did not learn to read and write, from people who, you know, they were born onto a plantation that their parents had been born onto and that their children would be born onto and that their children would be born onto, that this, that reflects the intergenerational violence that slavery was, is so important, but also important because what we see in these narratives is not simply the brutality. We certainly see that. We see the violence, we see the brutality, we see the cruelty, but we also see these glimpses and these small moments in which enslaved people are saying that, like, I am still human. I am still someone who, who falls in love. I am still someone who raises my children to be kind and to be generous. I am still someone who loves to dance with my friends on a Saturday night while the moon is shining down. And they, there's these, the, the narratives are full of those moments that remind you of the personhood of these people who, in so much of our teaching of history, are sort of these these silhouettes or these abstractions, these people without names and faces. And part of what these narratives offer us is the opportunity to see them for who they were. And also they remind us that no one description of what life was like under slavery in the years that followed will ever fully represent the totality of the experience. Absolutely. You know, slavery was a cruel experience, but it also looked different in so many different contexts. One of the historians I spoke to said that, you know, Sometimes people don't want to use the Federal Writers Project narratives because of the biases that they feel might exist, uh, you know, whether from the interviewer or from the interviewee. But she also said that, you know, in the letters that we use from our founding fathers and the letters that we use from plantation owners and the letters that we use from the people who have been the primary source of our primary source documents for for centuries, those are filled with bias as well. Right. Thomas Jefferson was biased. Thomas Jefferson was biased. He both drafted the Declaration of Independence and he wrote of black people that they were inferior to white people in both endowments of body and mind. And, and you have to take both of those things into account and account for them as you, you sort of bring as many historical documents and primary sources together to make sense of what this period of time meant. You write about some people living today who learned more about their ancestral history through these narratives. Will you tell us about one of them? Yeah, one of the parts I enjoyed most about this project was was getting to have conversations with people who were the descendants of those who were interviewed for this project. And one of those people whose story I was most moved by was was Noah Lewis. And his great-great-grandfather was a man named William Sykes who was interviewed as part of the Federal Writers Project. And for Noah, it was it was this life-changing, trajectory-shifting moment in which, you know, he had always been interested in family history and genealogy. But then after he discovered William Sykes' narrative, just felt so profoundly moved that he wanted to spend the rest of his life working to bring history and specifically the history of black people to as many people as possible. And sort of now he's deeply involved in the uh, reenactment community. Um, he does reenactments of uh, black soldiers from the Revolutionary War, because for him, it's really important to make sure that people don't only understand the black experience in this country as one of being on the receiving end of violence, of one is being on the receiving end of cruelty, but as, as a group of people who, in spite of that cruelty, in spite of that violence, have contributed so much to this country, contributed through the military, contributed through culture, contributed through literature, um, and has now dedicated his life to embodying that story um, every day. You end this article talking about the need to document the experiences of black people living today. 
who survived the civil rights fights of the 1960s and so on. What do you think we're losing if we don't do that? You know, I sat down with my own grandparents uh, a couple of years ago uh, and started asking them questions about their life in, in ways that I hadn't asked them before. And they told me stories about growing up. You know, my grandfather was born in 1930, Jim Crow apartheid, Mississippi. My grandmother born in 1939, Jim Crow apartheid, Florida. And it was this really remarkable moment because I learned so much about their lives that I hadn't understood before. And I think there are just millions and millions of people across this country who have lived through Jim Crow. And I just think it's so valuable and so important to collect those stories before that group passes on. It is so important for us to document those stories and, and to do it at scale, because if we don't, we might fall into the trap of misunderstanding and misremembering what happened and how it happened. Clint Smith is a staff writer for The Atlantic, and his latest piece is part of the magazine's Inheritance Project, dedicated to elevating underreported black history. Thank you for talking with us. Thank you so much. Why do you keep calling this the Chinese virus? There are reports of dozens of incidents of bias against Chinese Americans in this country. Your own aide, Secretary Azar, says he does not use this term. He says ethnicity does not cause the virus. Why do you keep using this? A lot of people say it's racist. It's not racist at all, no, not at all. It comes from China. Someone said that race, someone said that people were racist against Asians. I think that's dishonest. Um, she could have just said racist. People that are racist. But um, nope, that wasn't going to happen. But we're going to start with another important story that hasn't gotten much attention attacks against the Asian American and Pacific Islander population are on the rise across the U.S. In recent weeks, there's been a surge in violent incidents in the Bay Area and beyond, specifically targeting Asian American elders. In San Francisco, an 84-year-old Thai man died after being shoved to the ground during a morning walk. And in nearby Oakland, a 91-year-old man was violently pushed to the ground, unprovoked in the city's Chinatown. But the recent violence against the AAPI population isn't coming out of nowhere. Since the pandemic started, anti-Asian racism and violence have surged in the U.S., in part fueled by the racist and xenophobic rhetoric and policies that came out of the Trump White House. According to Stop AAPI Hate, an organization tracking racist incidents against Asian Americans, there have been more than 2,800 incidents of anti-Asian discrimination since March, that includes everything from physical violence and verbal harassment to bullying and vandalism. And although it's unclear whether the recent attacks were racially motivated, the pain and fear experienced by the AAPI population is clear. This surge in anti-Asian violence is where we start on The Takeaway today. With me to talk about this is Chris Kwok, a mediator based in New York City and co-executive editor of the new report, A Rising Tide of Hate and Violence Against Asian Americans in New York During COVID-19. Chris, welcome to the show. Hi there. And also with us is Russell Jung, a professor with the Asian American Studies Department at San Francisco State University and a co-founder of the group Stop AAPI Hate. Russell, it's good to have you with us. Great to be here. So, Russell, let's start with some of the recent incidents of anti-Asian violence. Um, what's happening in the Bay Area and elsewhere in California? 
Well, it's been horrific. You know, um, during Lunar Year, the first thing you do is greet your um, seniors, your elders, and bow to them. And now, instead, what we're seeing are horrific attacks against our senior and elderly population. And there's been a spate of street violence and crime that, um, again, aren't necessarily racially motivated, but are just um, creating a, a fear and anxiety within the Asian American community. And so, so you talk about motive. Has there been a motive identified in these attacks? Uh, not that we know of um, yet. But what we do know is that in the past year, anti-Asian racism and hate have surged, um, not only because of the um, fear of the pandemic, but because of the racist political rhetoric that just has incited hate speech and then hate violence. And, and so, Russell, you talked about the Lunar New Year. So this is a chance for um, many Asian families to gather together. Um, how are communities responding to these attacks right now? I think our um, community has really stood up against the racism and the violence directed towards us. Um, in the Bay Area, over 50 community groups have held rallies the past weekend for um, to show support of our elders and to heal our communities, to build racial solidarity. So, um, and across the nation, I've seen celebrities and athletes, um, high school students, um, people from all walks of life really rallying to and mobilizing to stop the racism. And Chris, these kinds of anti-Asian attacks aren't just happening in California, but they're happening across the U.S. So you recently authored a report that was looking at this trend in New York City. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you found? What we found in 2020 was a ninefold increase in anti-Asian uh, attacks in New York City. And these are just statistics that the NYPD has collected. So we think it's just the tip of the iceberg and that they were actually much more in 2020. And, you know, this concerned us because we are not aware of any prosecutions on the criminal side, nor any resolutions on a civil side uh, of any of these incidents. So, so we're worried as to where it's leading in New York City as well. And so can you tell us how this racism manifests itself um, besides the very violent assaults? What, what else is the AAPI population experiencing? It, it, it ranges, and it, it's, it, it's directed towards, like, mothers playing with their children at the playground where other mothers would say, you know, hey, you know, don't play with uh, that, that Asian, you know, kid because they're the ones that brought corona here. So it really runs the gamut. And it's a, it's a chilling sort of effect on Asian Americans as they go about their daily lives. And Russell, is that a similar experience in California for the Asian community? Yeah, it's clear. People are targeting our what they perceive are vulnerable populations. Women are harassed 2.4 times more than men. Youth and elderly are disproportionately represented in our reports. And what is this doing to people's mental health, Russell? Oh, it's had a severe impact. Not only are Asian Americans concerned about um, getting COVID, they're concerned about um, their elderly um, parents. And we live in more multi-generational households than the rest of the nation. We're concerned about our um, livelihood. And then the racism compounds the stress and anxiety. So Asian Americans are the racial group experiencing the most depression, anxiety, and from the um, racism, racial trauma during COVID-19. 
And so, Russell, there has been some arrests in California, at least one arrest. Um, is that person being charged with a hate crime? No, not necessarily. Uh, hate crimes, again, are um, incidents where you can be arrested and where there's racial bias that's been um, demonstrated. And again, these incidents seemingly are unprovoked and um, there aren't witnesses to hear what the person said. So you can't tell if it was racially motivated or not. We do know in our incidents that have been reported, about one third include racist statements when people, when the perpetrators say things like, um, go back home, you effing chink, or um, it's because of you and your people, we have the coronavirus. So people are using racist language and racial slurs to attack us. And Chris, how is the NYPD responding? Well, they created an anti-Asian task force, and, you know, we applaud them for that. And, um, you know, our recommendation was that they go further along. They made it permanent recently. Uh, but we think that, you know, right now it's a volunteer task force, which means that the detectives are serving full time on another uh, role and then take this on in a volunteer basis. We think it should be a full time uh, assignment and the commander be given a, a budget and, and have this, you know, sort of exist until there's no need for it. And, and Chris, do you believe that a lot of these um, incidents are going unreported? Absolutely. You know, um, you know, there's a big language disconnect between the police and, uh, and, and Asian American populations, particularly ones who don't speak English well. Um, and, you know, th there is, I think, a general feeling that if you report it, it's not going to go anywhere. It's going to be extremely time consuming. So we have specific recommendations that we think might make it easier, uh, you know, for these reports to be taken seriously. And, and Russell, are racist crimes against the AAPI population historically underreported? Yeah, they've been historically underreported for the same um, reasons Chris mentioned, um, language access, um, thinking it's not going to do any good. Um, it's clear that we're receiving much more reports than the police are, including um, physical assaults. So people are reporting to us because we have 12 different languages. We're a trusted community partner. And because people feel like um, they don't necessarily want um, to criminalize people, but our people, our, our respondents want a collective voice just to stop it from happening to others. And, and for either of you, what's the media coverage been like? Have these attacks been getting much attention from mainstream media? I mean, I think that they have been covered, particularly in the beginning, which was like in March of 2020, and then it petered out during BLM. Um, and and then I think that social media, you know, in the recent sort of uh, death of the Thai American, um, you know, social media really, I think, began to ring the bell. And then I think it's made its way into sort of mass media. So I think that, you know, that the social media and Asian Americans on, on Facebook and Twitter have really sort of remade it an issue during this, I think, second wave. Right. There's been some celebrities who have stepped in and, and tried to highlight these incidents. Russell, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, even though, you know, these thousands of cases are really horrific and traumatizing, I've been actually heartened to see the Asian American community stand up 
and mobilize at this moment. So we're seeing people from all walks of life, celebrities, um, athletes, but also you know, high school students, data scientists, working with Stop API Hate to um, address this racism and to um, call for racial solidarity at this moment. The list of things to do in Seattle is long. Black and Latino Americans are getting vaccinated at far lower rates nationwide, and the state of Washington is no exception. 65% of the state's white population has been fully vaccinated. That's according to a new report from the state's health department. In contrast, less than 3% of the state's black population has gotten both doses of the vaccine. Well, now some unconventional efforts are underway to close that gap, like pop-up vaccine clinics in communities of color. Joining us now is Ahmed Ali. He's a pharmacist and the executive director of the Somali Health Board, and he's been setting up these pop-up clinics throughout Seattle. Welcome. Thank you so much, Anne, for having me. Yes, Ahmed, how effective have these vaccine pop-ups been so far? I think that these vaccine pop-up sites have been very effective. As we all know that initially, uh, with good intentions, uh, majority of vaccine accessibility was mainly through the Internet are folks who are able to access the internet. And fortunately, that leaves many of our community members who, who are facing technological gap, cultural barriers, and even sometimes linguistic barriers. Uh, and we've been able to set up multiple pop-up sites for the vaccine for black and brown immigrant refugee communities throughout Southeast Seattle. And it's going really well so far. You've done videos in Somali to help people overcome their fears. Let's take a listen. Ahmed, it was important to you to have messages in the native language of the communities you're trying to reach. What major questions have you been able to answer this way that members of the Somali community weren't getting? You know, it's interesting that much like any other communities, uh, the Somali community had multiple questions and a lot of misinformation about the COVID vaccine. Uh, and I did this video primarily to show, and along with my colleagues at Somali Health Board, and we wanted to send a message to the community that these vaccines are efficient and they're safe. So I think it, it did a really good work indicating that me as a healthcare provider, I've got my vaccine, I'm doing fine, there are no side effects of the need to worry about, and therefore that made a lot of community members comfortable to come and get the vaccine when it was their time to get vaccinated. This is a very important point to make because building that trust is so important here. You've been to Brighton House. That's an affordable housing unit with many immigrant seniors living there. I know that that was a great success. How do you actually go about choosing where to host these pop-ups? You know, I, I, I would like to say that a lot of these pop-up sites are connected through already established relationships. We're working with these community centers and apartments at a previous time so that we know the need within the communities uh, that we are currently working with to make sure they get they have access to the vaccines. For instance, Bria Kachofoski-Louis, who is a member of the Brighton uh, Task Force, made sure that we, once we receive the vaccines at the pharmacy, that the seniors who ha are having difficulties getting online appointments have the first vaccine pop-up site. So we work along with the managers of uh, low-income senior home residents, the community centers, and also trusted ambassadors within the community in terms of leadership. And that made it easier for us to make sure that these vaccines are allocated. Washington State has just announced a new initiative that looks to raise about $30 million to fund equity efforts in, in getting folks vaccinated. And as I mentioned, vaccine rollout has, has not 
been racially equitable across the country. What advice do you have to other pharmacists or medical professionals that are looking to make a difference in getting vaccines distributed fairly where they are? I particularly want to make sure that folks understand that majority of Americans across the country are probably within walking distance of pharmacies and mainly independent pharmacies. And I think they have a huge opportunity and oftentimes play a significant role as they understand their communities well. They can relate to the families that are in need of the vaccine as accessibility becomes uh, more evident in the near future. I know you're you're actually headed to a pop-up today, so thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. That's Ahmed Ali, pharmacist and executive director of the Somali Health Board that's setting up pop-up vaccine clinics in Seattle, Washington. White supremacy is the sickness. The toll of the pandemic is highlighted in stark terms again today. A government report finds that expected lifespans fell in this country by a year on average in the first half of 2020. That is the largest drop since World War II. Overdoses, heart attacks, and other illnesses are part of that. But researchers say the pandemic undoubtedly is a major factor. Moreover, the gaps along racial lines are profound. White life expectancy fell by about eight months, while black Americans lost 2.7 years of average life expectancy. Among Latinos, life expectancy dropped by nearly two years. And these numbers are even larger among men. Experts say that this points to major socioeconomic disparities, and we're going to focus on that tonight. Dr. Reed Tuxen is a former commissioner of public health here in Washington, D.C., who now has his own firm. He's one of the leaders of the Black Coalition Against COVID-19. Dr. Tuxen, thank you very much for joining us tonight. We appreciate it. First of all, overall, as you look at these numbers broadly, are they surprising they are not surprising. Uh, we have known and experienced this excess uh, exposure of African-Americans uh, to the COVID uh, pandemic. We knew that we were dying uh, three times more uh, often, uh, two times more often than the rest of the country and being hospitalized three times more. So it is not surprising. However, it still does not uh, dim the, the sadness, the pain, the heartache uh, that comes with looking at these quantitative numbers that are really describing in mathematical ways the feelings and emotions that we've had all along. So when you see, Dr. Tuxen, uh, as you mentioned, black Americans, uh, the average drop life expectancy three times, that what it is for white Americans among Latinos, it's two times uh, the drop that it is for white Americans. Why is this? Well, we know, first of all, that African-Americans are exposed to this uh, virus more often uh, than other people because of the nature of the jobs that we have, uh, that so many of us are the ones on the front lines in running our buses and subways in the retail industry, uh, the ones cleaning our streets. Uh, we are the ones who are more often unable to practice our, make our, uh, our livelihood by being at home and, and working online. So we're much more exposed. Number two, the conditions under which so many African-Americans live make it very difficult to fight off this, uh, this, this uh, COVID uh, pandemic. We are often and more often living in crowded housing with multi-generational families. Uh, we have much less opportunity to do the social distancing uh, that we wanted to have done. And then third and finally, a, a major element, element is that pre-existing, we were suffering from 
pre-existing chronic health issues, more heart disease, more lung disease, more diabetes, more obesity. And all of those, as we have learned from the beginning of the pandemic, predisposed to poorer outcomes when you are finally uh, infected uh, with the COVID-19 virus. It's so interesting that a number of the things you're discussing are parallel to what we heard from Dr. Bullard a few minutes ago in discussing why communities of color are disproportionately affected by these terrible uh, winter storms and the conditions that come from them. But, Dr. Tuxin, what about just in terms of health care services and what is available and what isn't in communities of color? Well, well, first of all, I think it is very important to go back to the point that you're making about Dr. Ballard and the comments that he made. Remember that health is the place where all of the social forces converge to express themselves with the greatest clarity and the most importance. Health is where everything comes together. So when we think about the, the health outcomes of people of color, it's not just medical care. It is very much the social determinants that lead to health outcomes, housing, economic instability, education. Act, act, uh, challenging access to uh, healthy foods, uh, community environments that are filled with stress and are not safe. And then we come to the quality of care. Uh, and that point is very important. We have known now for 20 years since the publication of a, of a major National Academy of Medicine study called Unequal Treatment that the delivery of health care to people of color is suboptimal uh, compared to white America for a variety of reasons. And so this is a long-standing challenge uh, that, unfortunately, the healthcare industry has yet to be able to fully uh, and adequately address. And I think part of what is so striking, and I was looking at the numbers of this afternoon, is that among black Americans, life expectancy had actually been improving. It had been increasing in the last couple of decades. So this is a, re- a really stark turn in the direction uh, of where we want to see uh, these numbers go. Uh, does it tell you, I mean, we all know the country was, was caught off guard, was not prepared for this pandemic. Do you believe there are going to be clear lessons we can learn, we can do something with coming out of this pandemic? I hope so. And I hope the first lesson that we learn, and this pandemic has shown such a bright light, is that each of us as individuals live in the context of a community of other people. So that when we choose as individuals to exert a right not to wear a mask and don't care that we could easily sicken or cause someone else to die, that is a major issue now of an ethical and moral nature in front of the society. If we have learned anything, it is that we have to begin to focus our attention on empathy and love, a concern and caring for everyone. For black people, this is particularly important because we now realize that black people have, because of a, of, of a history of deeply planted seeds of distrust, and those seeds being watered every day by our experience in living our lives in American society, that that distrust leads to very negative behaviors. It leads us to make decisions sometimes that are contrary to our best interests. And so now we know that as we go forward, that we've learned the lesson that we have to bond together. And certainly the health enterprise, the researchers, the clinicians, and the health policy experts have got to come together now and try to do everything we can with the rest of our society to overcome this distrust, because this distrust is not just an idle emotion. Distrust leads to death. 
And then finally, I think what this does is to focus everyone's attention on getting at these structural racism issues, these social determinants of health that were always present in creating uh, uh, excess uh, experiences with disease and death. But now we know what it does for a, a pandemic like, uh, like COVID-19. And hopefully it will now regenerate a much greater focus on getting at these root and fundamental causes. Well, it is certainly something that we at the NewsHour are committed to continue to cover. And again, so stark seeing these numbers over just the first half of 2020, seeing the life expectancy uh, change, uh, incredibly discouraging. Dr. Reed Tuxen, thank you very much. Thank you. Medical apartheid, the dark history of medical experimentation on black Americans from colonial times to the present. A lingering mistrust of the medical system makes some black Americans more hesitant to sign up for COVID-19 vaccines. The early data show a stark disparity in who is getting shots in this country. More than 60% going to white people and less than 6% to African Americans. The mistrust is rooted in history, including the infamous U.S. study of syphilis that left black men in Tuskegee, Alabama, to suffer from the disease. NPR's Debbie Elliott traveled to Tuskegee to see how that 20th century tragedy affects the vaccine rollout today. Cheryl Owens says she grew alarmed talking with family and friends and elderly relatives in Tuskegee who told her they were afraid to get a COVID vaccine. So I asked why. And it was like, well, you remember that Tuskegee syphilis study? That's why. Officially named the study of untreated syphilis in the Negro male, the U.S. Public Health Service, working with the Tuskegee Institute, recruited hundreds of rural black men in 1932, offering free meals and checkups, but never explaining that they'd be human subjects in a study designed to deny them medical treatment. They had local leaders, church leaders, medical people, to convince them to become involved with the study. Owens is a nurse at the Central Alabama Veterans Healthcare System and grew up in Tuskegee, a city of about 8,000. It has a storied African-American history as home to the Tuskegee Airmen, and Booker T. Washington and George Washington Carver were educators here. But the syphilis study also looms large in Tuskegee's collective memory. Owens, who is 59, says she remembers hearing about it in elementary school, so she understands why people in this nearly all-black community are skeptical when the government says, take a shot. And they felt that the government was really wanted to inject something in their bodies, and they were going to eventually die from that. To help dispel that notion, Owens penned an op-ed in the local newspaper, including a picture of her getting the shot. Health officials are up against a powerful sentiment as they try to ramp up vaccinations. I think a part of the challenge is that there's still a lot of anxiety about the vaccine. Amir Farooqi is director of the Central Alabama VA. It's unfortunate because it's a really great tool to help people protect their personal health as well as the public health. Thank you for choosing to protect yourself from the coronavirus by being vaccinated today. In a large auditorium at the VA's Tuskegee campus, an informational video explaining just what to expect plays on an overhead screen as people wait their turn for a shot. Seventy-eight-year-old Vietnam veteran Douglas Terry is masked up and ready to get one. With this, there's hope. Nurse Pamela Bell gives him his first jab. You through? Yes, sir. Can't feel it. Not at all. Good. 
Terry says he intends to spread the word that he and his wife got the injection. After they hear us doing it, that's why we want to do it. So to get him uh, courage to do it also. That's what VA officials want to hear. They've set up a selfie station at the clinic and hand out stickers proclaiming you've been vaccinated. The VA's infectious disease physician, Dr. April Truitt, says that word of mouth will be key to overcoming reservations about the shot. The more people hear about the vaccine, the more they know someone else who's received the vaccine, the more they see how well they did, the more comfortable they become with the vaccine. It's the biggest PR project to get black people to take that vaccine. Lucinia Williams-Dunn is the former mayor of Tuskegee and runs a local community development organization. She's not convinced. Even though she's been watching the pandemic's devastating and disproportionate impact on African Americans, she still questions the rapid development of the vaccine. And then there's the history. You cannot separate the experience of the past with what we believe in the present. I mean, people say, well, you know, uh, y'all are not to be worried about that, that syphilis study. Yeah, we do. Because that's part of our experience. The vaccine rollout has sparked a conversation among descendants of the men involved in the syphilis study. Among them is Thylene Williams of Tuskegee. She says her grandfather died before knowing the truth about the study. Grandfather, his name was Willie Fitzpatrick. He was, he was a good man family man, a farmer. She says there's a difference between what's happening now and what the government did to her grandfather and the other men. They didn't know what they were getting into. Williams, who is 72, says she was able to talk with her doctor about the vaccine. I went on and got it, the first shot. We knew about it. We've been hearing and talking about it. It's not like, come on, we're going to do this. Nobody knew anything about it like they did. Her grandfather is among those now memorialized at the Tuskegee History Center on a large tile circle in the middle of the museum. And around here in alphabetical order, you have the names of all 623 men. That's Tuskegee civil rights attorney Fred Gray, who represented the men when the truth came out about the study in the 1970s, 40 years after it began. Participants were not injected with syphilis, but those who already had it were left untreated, even once penicillin was available. Not only did they withhold treatment from it, but they sent these men's names to the various doctors in the area and told them if they came to their office not to treat them for syphilis. Gray won a $10 million settlement for the men and later secured this apology from President Clinton in 1997. What the United States government did was shameful, and I am sorry. Gray, who is 90 years old now, takes issue with people citing the syphilis study as a reason not to get vaccinated. Individuals, if they elect not to take the vaccine, for whatever reason, but they shouldn't put it is because of what the government did to the men in the Tuskegee syphilis study because they're all together different situations. A January poll from Kaiser Family Foundation found that more than half of black adults surveyed said they did not have immediate plans to get vaccinated. 43% said they were going to wait and see how well it's working. 
That hesitancy is to be expected, says Reuben Warren, director of the National Center for Bioethics and Research and Healthcare at Tuskegee University, established and funded by the federal government as a result of the syphilis study. He says the mistrust of the health care system among African Americans is twofold. It's both historical and current, and not either or, but both and. Dating to slavery and continuing through the eugenics movement, he says, black bodies have been medically abused. Now, he says, the coronavirus pandemic and its disparate impact on people of color have exposed the shortcomings of the U.S. health care delivery system. For instance, there's no hospital serving the general public in Tuskegee, and COVID testing was hard to come by here early on. So it's not just historical, but it's current. So the combination of that makes folks pause. Warren says seeing the mayor and community leaders getting vaccinated is not the kind of assurance that people need. What they need to know, he says, is that the health care system will deliver for them in the future. Debbie Elliott, NPR News, Tuskegee, Alabama. You're dirt. We think you're dirt, Paul. Who is we? The West, all the superpowers, everything you believe in, Paul. They think you're dirt. They think you're dumb. You're worthless. I'm afraid I don't understand what you are saying, sir. Oh, come on, don't bullshit me, Paul. You're the smartest man here. You got them all eating out of your hands. You can own this freaking hotel, except for one thing. You're black. You're not even a nigger. You're an African. Millions of Americans have already received their coronavirus vaccines, but poor countries in sub-Saharan Africa have managed to administer only a handful. The disparity is bringing back memories of the AIDS epidemic, when hundreds of thousands of Africans died because life-saving drugs were delayed. NPR's Ader Peralta reports. In 2001, Maureen Morenga was pregnant and HIV positive. She was living in Kenya, and a counselor encouraged her to fill out a memory book. She wrote directions to her village, details about her family, so that when she died, someone would know where to leave her children and where to bury her. It was nothing life-preparing. It was actually preparing us for death. What seemed so unfair to Morenga is that she knew that in the United States and in Europe, there were drugs that could save her life. Antiretroviral drugs, or ARVs, had been widely available in the West since 1997, but they were too expensive for most Africans on the continent. Morenga became a vocal advocate, publicly disclosing her status, lobbying the Kenyan government and the world to make the life-saving drugs more accessible. It took a lot of pushing and pulling. And, and wishing we could inject them with, uh, with compassion to save lives. Over the next few years, countries like South Africa took the principled stands, fighting against patents to make the drugs more affordable. AIDS activists across the world banded together to lobby rich countries to end what scientists called a crime against humanity. At least the world listened. In the early 2000s, the U.S. launched PEPFAR, and an international coalition launched the Global Fund. The programs pumped billions of dollars into buying ARVs and saved millions of lives around the world. Morenga says as the coronavirus spread, she thought the West would have learned from the HIV experience. But... As usual, we are waiting for them to finish vaccinating their people so that they can now uh, bring aid to the people of Africa. 
I think we are repeating some of the mistakes and that is truly unacceptable. That is Alan Maleche, who advocates for the legal rights of Kenyans with HIV. He says right now rich countries are hoarding vaccines, poor countries are paying higher prices for them, and the central lesson of the HIV epidemic, that if one person is vulnerable, everyone is vulnerable, seems lost. If you don't address both the rich and the poor countries, you will not be able to win the fight, be it for HIV, be it for TB, or be it for COVID. Stephen Thrasher, whose upcoming book deals with how marginalized people are disproportionately affected by viruses, calls the development of antiretroviral drugs, quote, one of the great miracles of modern science. It made HIV easier to treat than diabetes. He views the global response, PEPFAR and the Global Fund, more critically. Millions of lives were saved, but people are still dying is that the science won the battle, but capitalism made the war be lost because it's been 25 years and almost a million people a year still die of HIV. He says the same thing is happening with the COVID vaccine. Cheaper generic vaccines are not available and Africa is being left behind. And unlike the days of the HIV epidemic, there doesn't seem to be popular pressure to end this disparity. He recalls Zaki Ahmed in South Africa. He was a film director who refused to take ARVs until poorer people could access them. Thrasher, who is American, says that kind of empathy is in short supply these days. We're certainly not saying as a country, we're not going to take it until we make sure the poor countries get it. We've been set into a scramble of trying to, everyone trying to get it as quickly as they can. As for Maureen Murenga, she eventually got the ARVs, but her fight is not over. As an advocate, it's still, it's about lives. Yeah. So we don't rest until we see these lives have been saved. It's what she did during the AIDS epidemic. It is what she'll do now. Ada Pralta, NPR News, Nairobi. The stars at night are big and bright. Where does that happen, Ray? Deep in the heart of Texas. In Texas today, the electrical grid is still groaning under the weight of treacherous winter weather. Millions of people in Texas spent last night in the dark and in the cold. Doctors are worried that more could suffer from hypothermia if the power outages continue. And now it's not just Texas. More than a dozen other states are bracing for rolling blackouts to help preserve the weakened grid. Joining us now is Lanny Nickel. He's executive vice president for Southwest Power Pool, which manages much of the grid in the central part of the country. And Lanny, I have heard you say that in your history as grid operator, you have never seen anything like this. Tell me about the rolling blackouts you've ordered beyond Texas and your messages to utilities in those states. You bet. And the term blackouts has a really negative connotation. And I I certainly do not want to trivialize the situation we're in. We prefer to call those interrupted service conditions. And wow, yo, drama, hold up, hold on, hold on. Stop the motherfucking record. Black, destitute of light, devoid of color, enveloped in darkness, hence utterly dismal or gloomy. As the future looked black. Pretty good with them words, ain't you? Soiled with dirt, foul, sullen, hostile, forbidding, as a black day. Foully or outrageously wicked as black cruelty. 
indicating disgrace, dishonor, or culpability. And there's others. Black male, black ball, black guard. Yeah, well, there's some right. The term blackouts has a really negative connotation, and I, I certainly do not want to trivialize the situation we're in. We refer to call, prefer to call those interrupted service conditions, and when we get to the point, which is exactly where we've been, at least for certain periods of time throughout Monday and Tuesday of this week, where the resources, the supply that we have available after we've done everything we can do to turn those generators on and to use them to the fullest extent that we can, if demand exceeds that supply, we have no choice but to interrupt back to the point to where demand equals supply. Well, no matter whether you call them blackouts or service disruptions, I mean, there are millions of people around the country who are depending on this system to work. I mean, in Nebraska, people woke up today and it was 31 degrees below zero. This is life or death. What can you tell those people about when this situation will be back to normal, to the way it should be? So far today, uh, things are looking better. Uh, it, we, we could certainly be right back into the situation because there's so many factors that that play into these decisions that, that impact us that are really in some cases outside our control. Um, what we are trying to do is to proactively manage the situation so that we don't lose control of the grid. If we lose control of the grid, then then the outages that would occur as a result of the system taking over and doing its own thing to protect itself could be much longer, could be much severe, uh, and could impact many, many more people. And that is the last thing we want to see happen. While it's not fun, it's not comfortable, at least it's better than experiencing the results of, of what could happen in an uncontrolled fashion. Oh, well, I do appreciate the fact that the job is, is daunting, though there are many people in Texas and across the middle of the country who probably feel that there are things that are within your control that maybe could have been done before this storm hit the country. Uh, for instance, one of the major problems we know is that the supply of natural gas has faced tremendous pressure as the wells and pipelines in that region have frozen up. I mean, is there something that grid operators could have done better because they relied too much on a single source of energy, for instance? You know, at this point in time, I can't tell you what we could have done differently because, you know, whether that's gas, whether that's wind, whether it's solar, whether it's coal, we have absolutely no input regarding the decisions about the nature of the generating plants that do get built. We just simply have to use what's made available to us, and we do direct that any and all resources that can operate, that they do operate. You know, the interruptions, uh, interruptions of service is a last resort, and, uh, and we will continue to make sure that we do everything we can before we interrupt load. Several times I've heard you hint at some dark alternatives that could be happening here if the problem isn't handled correctly. What do you mean? What are you saying? How, how bad could this get? All I can do is refer you to situations in the past where events weren't controlled. I recall the blackout in the northeastern part of the United States that occurred in 2003. Uh, now, that was, that was a different situation. It, had, it wasn't as much about, well, in fact, it had nothing to do with cold weather. 
but it wasn't controlled. And the system began to separate because the individual elements of the system are designed to protect themselves whenever overloaded equipment begins to occur. And so, I mean, that affected millions of people and they were without power for days. And, you know, the cost was was really extreme. And that's what we don't want to have happen. Um, I can tell you that if we didn't curtail the uh, 641 megawatts or one and a half percent of our customer base Monday and six and a half percent on uh, Tuesday, we would have seen frequency excursions that would have caused generators to begin to trip offline. And I don't I can't tell you when it would have stopped. Lanny Nickel, Executive Vice President for Southwest Power Pool, which operates the power grid for 14 states in the middle of the country. Uh, Lanny, you've got a lot on your hands, so thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us. You bet. Thank you very much, Peter. You think she realized by now it's the hair? It's all about the hair. Hair? What hair? She ain't got no hair. If your hair has been falling out in this pandemic, you're not alone. Far from it. A recent study in the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology reports that New York City practitioners saw a, quote, abrupt uptick in cases of hair shedding. Some St. Louisans have noticed that trend on their own heads. That includes city resident Erin Leiden-Lorson. She left us this voicemail with her observations. In October, I woke up with um, three... I don't know, quarter size spots that were just completely gone. I went to my doctor. I was really nervous. Um, and I had no idea that that could happen to me. So, um, reading your article and hearing about how normal that is and how the stress of the pandemic, um, could influence it. That was just, again, it normalized the situation for me. Thank you. How do I stop them from multiplying? I went from one to four. And they're easy to hide, but, you know, I just, I don't know what to do. And that is Erin Leiden Lorson. And the problem that she describes there is particularly acute for some women of color. The journal article found a 400% increase in such cases last summer. And that's something that Abra McField is working to address here in St. Louis. She is the CEO and founder of Abracadabra Hair and Healing. She's a hair loss practitioner and a certified trichologist. And she joins us today to discuss this problem and also some solutions. So Abra McField, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. So first, give us some context on this. What does a trichologist do? A trichologist is the study, trichology is the study of hair and scalp diseases and problems and issues that promote or cause hair loss. Hmm. So you're looking at this, the big picture issue here, not just the stress stuff, but anything that goes into this problem. Correct. So have you seen a big increase in clients experiencing hair loss during this pandemic? I have, like... And it's been astronomical, actually. Hmm. Um, Yes, definitely. Definitely has gone up quite a bit since the pandemic. And have you noticed any commonalities in the people that are are coming to you with this problem? Yes. So stress has been a major cause. Now, obviously, there are always going to be, especially in women, more reasons than one why we would experience hair loss. Um, but stress seems to exacerbate the issue. And if we're already vulnerable, stress definitely pushes us uh, 
over that edge. Hmm. Well, we want to hear from you. If you're experiencing this problem, um, our phone lines are open. You can give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. You can also send us a tweet at STL on air. And we did get another voicemail about this as well. This one is from Marguerite, and she lives in St. Louis. I can't believe it, especially when I vacuum. I have to empty the canister, and there's enough hair to make a raccoon coat. It's amazing. I don't know if it's because I switched colors. I pull hair out of my combs, my brushes, especially after shampooing. The drain has to be cleared with all the hair. I don't know what's causing it, and I'm not under uh, immense stress. So I've decided no more coloring. I'm going to go silver. Hmm, that is Marguerite, who lives in St. Louis. Abra, she thinks that maybe the hair color that she's using is part of the problem. Can hair color contribute to this problem? Yeah, so there are a bunch of internal and external reasons why we would experience hair loss. It kind of depends on the color that she's using. Color has ammonia, color has sulfate. Color has a bunch of ingredients um, that are pretty harsh for the scalp. Mm. And what it does is causes irritation, which makes the follicle that that is holding the hair extremely vulnerable and less strong enough to kind of hold the hair. And so that's kind of like what happens like internally, but or externally, but internally, you also be experiencing something called um, DHT. It's short for dehydrotestosterone, which is our own body sensitivity to um, uh, uh, testosterone, the hormone called testosterone. Hmm. So it will block your hair follicles from receiving the necessary blood, nutrients, and oxygen that oxygen that is needed to promote hair growth. And so if you're not getting that proper flow, if you have any type of blockages, then the the activity, cellular activity shuts down, which causes a lot more shedding. Hmm. So a lot of times that comes with age, a lot of times it's genetics, but there are things that you can do to reverse um, that issue as well. So, but yes, colors, shampoos, different types of shampoos and topicals that, that people can use definitely can cause irritation on the scalp, cause itchiness, uh, inflammation, and it makes that follicle extremely vulnerable. And, and so by the, by that, it can't hold the, the hair. It's not strong enough to hold the hair. And so the hair can either break off at the point of sight or um, it can shed. Hmm. It's interesting. You mentioned the idea that some of this is genetic. Are there some of us where we might be fine, but we have this, this genetic issue that once we get super stressed out, it's going to manifest itself? Correct. Exactly. So if you're already predisposed to um, DHT, which again is a short for dehydrotestosterone, our own body sensitivity to uh, the hormone testosterone, and you're having blockages. And then when you add stress to it, what happens is you have different hair growth phases. You have phases where you have an active phase, and then you have a resting phase, and then you have a, a, a phase in which it, your hair sheds. What happens is when you add stress onto already vulnerable situations, about 10 to 15 percent of your head is always in a shedding phase. Now, it may not all shed at one time. It'll shed over time. But 10 to 15 percent of your head is definitely ready to shed. And what happens is when you add the stress onto it, it pushes that faster and makes it happen all at once. And so the first call with the young lady experiencing like different areas of 
of shedding or hair loss um, mm-hmm. o- o- over all of her head, that could have very well been that 10 to 15 percent that was that she was going to lose it anyway at some point. But because of stress, more than likely, it pushed it all at, at one point of time. It pushed it all at one time. Mm-hmm. And so usually that's called telogen effluvium. So that's called telogen effluvium. When you kind of lose your telogen phase is the phase where you lose your hair, um, with the natural shedding. But effluvium is when you lose all of it at one at one time. Hmm. You know, this this stress that comes in this pandemic, this is no lie. We actually got a caller um, just now, Barbara and Clayton, who wanted to share. She was at the dentist recently. She notes that it's not just hair. More people are having cracked teeth from grinding their, mm. their teeth due to stress. It's just, it's horrible how this can impact <sighs> our bodies. And, <sighs> and Amber, I did want to ask you one part of this. We mentioned this journal article that found a 400% increase uh, for women of color when it comes to yes. these cases. Why do you think this has a affected women of color in particular? Well, a lot of times it's really proven that women of color are um, are less healthy mm. overall, like really deficient um, and lacking a lot of nutrients and, and have poor diets. Everybody, you know, all of us have, you know, some type of um, weakness in our, in our diet, but we're proven to be the most you know, obese or, you know, having the most heart issues and things like that, diabetes and things like that. So you already have that working against you. And so now you put us in a situation where um, normally minority, minority, minority women put their hair in the hands of professional completely, you know, because our hair is more natural, it's more dry, it's coily, it's kinky, it's very, very hard to manage. And a lot of us have just gotten away from the chemicals the, the permanent straighteners and relaxers. And so we don't know really what to do with our hair. So we trust the professional fully to manage it for us and to help us keep it straightened. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and we go to the salon to get things done and keep it healthy. But when they shut us down during the pandemic, they no longer had that option. And so they were forced to have to figure things out on their own. And so a lot of people neglect their hair or a lot of people do too much to their hair. And so because it's kinky and coily, it causes just a lot of friction and tension. And you're, you're constantly combing and, and running against resistance and brushing and running against resistance. And so you already have the natural shedding, but then you have the external shedding that is caused by the, the things that we are doing externally. So mm. the stress of not having that easy management when it comes to our hair. You know, we now we have to manage all of our hair on top of being a mother and working and things like that. But not, again, we don't know what to do. And so oftentimes we're doing the wrong things and we just do so much. Um, colors and relaxers and um, all different type of products that really cause irritation and affect um, our scalp. And so again, you know, to my point earlier, it's, it's not just one issue all of the time. It's usually, especially in women, more men can point to one issue, possibly maybe two, but women, especially, it can be so many issues at Mm. one time. And so again, to our point, when we're talking about stress, if you are already or extremely vulnerable, it's like you add stress, it's like you lose the war, you know? Yeah. So, well, and then I'm sure it becomes, it feeds on itself because then you get stressed out about what's happening with your exactly, hair. And, exactly. And so I guess that's, you know, Amber, we need you to share some solutions here because this is, this is stressing people out, the stress of this problem. What are some things people can do to save their hair if they start noticing this kind of shedding? 
Yes. Okay. So the first thing you can do is you want to use a product that has DHT inhibitors in there, and specifically organic DHT inhibitors. I actually have a product line myself, and I make sure that the DHT inhibitors that we include in our product were organic, um, and that's very important. And organic usually means it's from some type of plant extract. And some products, and and the crazy thing is there's not a lot of products on the market that have DHT inhibitors, but the the ones that do may have one (coughs) or two, and it's just simply not enough. So our products have between 8 and 11. So you want to use a product that has some type of DHT inhibitor in there because it really does help to um, open up the follicle so that you can receive all of the blood flow and oxygen and nutrients for just optimum, optimum hair growth. So another thing is you just don't want to always look to one solution. You want to have a multi-therapeutic approach, um, something that's helping internally and externally. So... I would definitely, if you haven't done yet, get some blood work done to see where you are with your the nutrients and vitamins that are needed um, just for, for daily health overall. Um, and some things like minerals, uh, zinc is, is very important, biotin, um, all of your vitamin Ds, vitamin Bs, making sure that you're just not deficient in anything could really help you build up that defense for stress. Hmm. Um, and then also just with natural holistic ways, you know, just trying to figure out where the stress is coming from. Um, I'm really big with trying to find the trigger instead of just bypassing the trigger and, and trying to um, fix the the result of the trigger. Because if you still have the trigger, then, you know, you're, you still have a, a very low defense. So just figuring out what is it that's actually causing stress and and try to resolve that, you know, try to put yourself around people that make you laugh, that truly love and support you. Try to engage in things that, that are very calming to the body. Um, it's proven that meditation and breath work really helps to calm the, the heart, calm the blood, hence calm the mind, which really reduces stress. And then um, definitely exercises and getting involved in some activities, even some creative activities that help bring a lot of joy um, to your life. And, and reading, if you have any problems anywhere, challenges, just trying to find a book hmm. to help, you know, resolve or to help um, combat the challenges, uh, issues that you are, are having for sure. And the last thing I could think of is really just journaling. Journaling and finding things that you're grateful for instead of things that you don't have. Like hmm. wherever your mind goes, where your life goes. is Wherever your energy flows is where your life goes. So try not to focus on the things that you don't have or that you believe that you're lacking in and try to focus on the things that you do have and finding every little reason, small or little, just to be grateful and Believe me, that really does help build up a major defense um, against the war of hair loss. Well, Ebra, that is just a great set of suggestions there. It kind of runs the gamut between the, the super practical and then the bigger picture. Um, just um, this is some good advice for anybody dealing with such a troubling problem. So Ebra yeah. McField, CEO and founder of Abracadabra Hair and Healing, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me.
And if you're listening to this show while working from home, scrunched over your computer, or you just haven't been outside much because of pandemic restrictions, you might be feeling a little stiff. After a year locked down in our homes, many people are reporting an increase in aches, pains, headaches, and a whole host of other physical ailments from the stress of living through a pandemic. This is Nancy from Silverdale, Pennsylvania. My fibromyalgia has increased and flared up since the pandemic. I've had to increase my medication with CBD. Aloha. This is Michelle Grossstein calling from Kaneohe, Hawaii. I'm recovering from a pinched nerve in my neck. I think I was holding all my tension in my shoulders and neck for too long and watching too much of the impeachment trial. Amanda Mull is a staff writer for The Atlantic who recently wrote a piece called, Yes, the Pandemic is Ruining Your Body. Amanda, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. So the pandemic is ruining my body, uh, lots of people's bodies. I've gotten carpal tunnel syndrome recently. I've got all types of aches and pains. How common are these types of injuries right now? They seem really common. Uh, I talked to a number of different types of, of doctors who have been seeing patients during the pandemic, and all of them reported different kinds of increases in, in injuries or problems or complaints that uh that they hadn't really been seeing at any particularly high volume before all of this happened. So it's affected how pretty much all doctors do their work uh, and what they see in their practices. And and it's affected pretty much every part of the human body. Are there specific things that are coming up more often than others? Is it stiffness? Is it joint pain? Is it just, you know, headaches? Like, what is it that people are reporting? Or, Or are people just reporting a myriad of different things? It's a myriad of different things, but I think that the most common stuff is probably not surprising to most people. Um, I talked to some orthopedists who said that their practice used to be mostly lower back stuff, uh, the types of things that people commonly complain about with their backs. But now a lot of those complaints have sort of migrated up the back. You get shoulder problems, upper back, neck. Uh, you get people with headaches, things like that because of their posture. And and they said that they think that that's because people are just sitting differently. Uh, a lot of people don't have good office setups. They don't have an office chair. They might be working from their couch or from a kitchen chair or something like that. And you end up sort of curving over, jutting your chin out, hunching your shoulders. And if you hold that position for a really long time, as a lot of us have been doing day in and day out for the past year, you create a variety of aches and pains for yourself up to things like headaches that might not have as obvious of a, of a source, but it's all in your posture. Now, we're talking in that instance, a lot of folks like me and others who are working from home who are sort of sitting and, you know, we've cobbled together, hacked together these these working from home environments. But there are folks that are also working on the front line still, essential workers. Are they also reporting an increase in physical aches and pains? I would say probably but none of the doctors that I talked to could tell me specifically what they've been seeing from frontline workers. And I think that that's a function of a lot of frontline jobs don't have healthcare, don't have paid time off. So if you're working in the service industry, if you're a delivery guy, if you're uh, a checkout person at a grocery store, if you're you know moving things around a warehouse, a lot of those positions just aren't going to have the same access to healthcare that work from home jobs that are usually office jobs, computer-based jobs, knowledge jobs, white collar jobs. Those kinds of positions are more likely to have uh, healthcare and time off to seek care. So we are, 
I think just starting to peel back the layers of all the ways that this pandemic has hurt our health. And what we're seeing now is mostly evidence from people who work from home. And I think it's going to take a little bit longer for us to find out how this has affected essential workers. Amanda, what about the elderly? We know that they are among some of the first to be vaccinated. Um, Some of them have already received their second dose. As they begin to become more active, are, are there specific issues that have cropped up for our older population during the pandemic? Yes, I think that a big one is that for the elderly, maintaining a level of physical activity and flexibility and dexterity is really, really important. And when you are confined to your apartment, confined to your room at assisted living in a nursing home, uh, unable to go to common areas and socially interact with with people around you, see your grandkids, etc., you lose that dexterity and flexibility and, and, and muscle tone really, really fast. And that the risk of doing that when you're elderly is far greater and it sets in far more quickly than for most of us. So once people who were once used to a a sort of baseline of physical capability uh, try to get back to that after a year of inactivity, you're going to see, I think, more injuries. You're going to see people who are trying to overperform their physical capability uh, just because they don't know how much they've lost. So you you end up in a situation where you might see more falls, you might see more strains, things like that. And I think that getting back to things sort of slowly but surely, uh, as you can restart physical therapy and start going to the dining room and, and assisted living and things like that, uh, is going to be really important to make sure that the elderly have already have already sacrificed so much during the pandemic, more than most of us. And in order to keep them from losing more, I think that a sort of slow but sure return to activity is really important instead of just diving back in. Amanda, of course, as people are beginning to feel these physical side effects from being isolated and being indoors for a year, essentially, some people, including myself, will say, well, I think I have to go get this checked out. That also requires a calculation of risk, leaving home to go to an office to get physical therapy or get acupuncture, for example, or any of the things that you might be thinking of, because you have to come in contact with people. And so is the fact that people are maybe wary about going to seek medical help right now for physical ailments making this even worse? Yes. All of the doctors I spoke with uh, expressed a lot of anxiety about people skipping care that might be essential or that might you know, show up down the line as something they should have done. Uh, I spoke to one cardiologist in particular who said that, especially towards the beginning of the pandemic, they were seeing people come in who had had heart attacks, who were waiting till the very, very last minute to seek care. And some of those people were at that point too sick to help. So there are a lot of serious things that are going on with people's health that have nothing to do with the coronavirus specifically. So if you put off seeking care for something else because you're afraid of COVID, it could have extraordinarily serious implications for your health. It could kill you. And trying to make that calculation is so, so difficult because for a lot of people who already have existing health problems, the the risk of getting COVID is very acute and what it could do to their bodies is also very, very serious. So I don't envy anybody in that position of being in some sort of serious pain and trying to hedge about whether or not this is something that's serious enough to risk another deadly problem. Yeah, it's very, very difficult to parse what people are supposed to do in that situation. 
The social isolation has really also limited what we're able to do. I, for example, enjoy swimming. Being able to do that in a pandemic is really difficult. How else has social isolation affected our bodies? If there there is a mind body connection, isn't there, Amanda? Yes. Social isolation, even before the pandemic, there was a lot of research about how social isolation degrades people's physical health, makes premature mortality much more likely, and just generally, you know, degrades people's well-being. And that that functions in a lot of ways. Like the routines that we go through to keep ourselves together, basically our our physical activities, our hygiene activities, our taking our medication and things like that, those habits are all socially rewarded. So if we can keep on top of all of that, we get all of the psychological benefit of seeing people and going and having social interactions and things like that, positive things. We don't have a lot of that reinforcement right now. So you get people who just you know, sort of spiral. They, they fall into despair. They have a hard time keeping up with their medication, keeping up with their hygiene, things like that. But then you also have the, the sort of second order effects of social isolation helps people understand when, when they are not doing as well as they could. When you're just inside your head all the time and you're alone all the time, you might not notice changes in your posture. You might not notice changes in your breathing, changes in your, your physical fitness, because uh, those things degrade over time. Whereas if you see someone, you know, a couple times a week, a neighbor or something like that even, doesn't have to be somebody close, that person has the opportunity to go, your breathing seems a little bit labored. Are you okay? You know, are you, have you been feeling okay? So it just provides sort of like this, this external check on you and your well-being that is very hard for some people to do for themselves, especially as you get older and and more things start to start to go wrong. Keeping track of all those things and, and where they are can be a little bit difficult. So that external social interaction provides uh, a lot of help to people in, in keeping track of their own health and deciding when they need to seek care. And if you don't have that, then then you're just sort of flying solo, trying to make those decisions yourself, which is really difficult. You mentioned insurance, and I'm sure there are people, we know that tens of thousands of Americans have lost their jobs during this pandemic. And I imagine that also has a, a physical, the stress from that also has a physical effect, but not having insurance to be able to go to the doctor is probably also keeping a lot of folks away, not just frontline workers, but just anyone who's lost their job right now. Right. Our healthcare system does not encourage people to seek care for anything, basically. Even if you have good insurance, it can be extraordinarily stressful to, to figure out how much a procedure is going to cost you, if, it, if you can go to a particular specialist to seek help on a particular problem. So if you take away even the baseline of insurance from that, and if somebody loses a job, they don't lo- just lose their insurance, but they lose their income. So basically, you lose both of the components that you need in order to seek medical care in the United States. And uh, so people delay, and, and that can be very, very dangerous. Amanda Mull is a staff writer at The Atlantic. Amanda, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you for having me. Tacky, trashy, terroristic. That is the interaction with black people and white people every day, wherever they happen to be. It's going to be one of those categories, a combination of all three. Before the day is over. But it it doesn't get any better than tacky. I call it the three T's. Tacky, trashy, terroristic. That's it. Anywhere on the planet you are. 
The LAPD may have some explaining to do after an employee reported that police officers were sharing a fake Valentine's card that mocked the death of George Floyd. Eyewitness News reporter Josh Haskell has the story. An internal LAPD investigation is underway into whether a department employee created or shared an offensive Valentine's Day message that mocked the death of George Floyd. The message reportedly showed a photo of Floyd with the words, you take my breath away. There's no room for mocking anyone's death, especially someone who died at the hands of police in Minnesota. Over the weekend, an LAPD employee reported seeing the image told his superiors and was interviewed by the department Monday. But the LAPD tells Eyewitness News they have not seen the image even after a workplace survey was conducted. In a tweet, the department said they will have zero tolerance for this type of behavior. It's scary knowing that we have racists who might come into our community and be in charge of policing black people. It's scary knowing that people have that mindset that they can mock someone's murder. This man had a foot on his neck for over eight minutes and died at the hands of the police, and yet someone within the LPD thinks it was funny. And George Floyd's family isn't laughing either. Family attorney Ben Crump said the Floyd family is understandably outraged. This is beyond insult on top of injury. It's injury on top of death. The type of callousness and cruelty within a person's soul needed to do something like this evades comprehension and is indicative of a much larger problem within the culture of the LAPD. The allegations the Post has been shared or was created by an LAPD employee are still being looked at, and it's not clear it was viewed at the workplace. L.A. County District Attorney George Gascone says that if true, this could create trust issues with the community that could decrease the likelihood of someone reporting a crime. The police union also repudiated the possible existence of what they call an abhorrent image. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy today's date saturday february 20 2021 so i have been told thank you all for your patience i thought i had timed things perfectly i had to retrieve my pumpkin pie from the oven i thought i had timed it so i could get it out of the oven before we went live and i looked and was like oh it's got to be in there an hour needed an extra 60 seconds so we did our little commercial right on counterracism.com uh, so much to share for this week's compensatory call in we'll be here tomorrow for our global Sunday talk on racism also tomorrow is actually 12 years to the day uh, of our return to the air uh, a dozen years of attempted counter-racist broadcasting. Uh, not that we have succeeded in solving the problem, but that is tomorrow. So we'll say a word on that. And then mostly just normal business for the global Sunday talk. Uh, this will actually be the first time that we speak to our international participants since president Biden has taken office uh, to hear about the transition as well as what is the vaccine rollout looking in different parts of the world? Uh, that'll be tomorrow, uh, 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central, 
12 p.m. Pacific. Uh, we will look forward to checking in with our different folks around the world. Might even have some international participants today, be in Toronto and others. Uh, let's see. 12 years listener supported counter racist radio. Uh, that in and of itself, uh, I hope uh, out of the many, many, many investors over the years, a dozen of them. Uh, I hope we have been constructive more often than not. Uh, solving the problem of white supremacy racism is pretty challenging. So I wish there were smarter folks than myself uh, who were willing to invest in trying to solve this problem. Hopefully there are, but wow, it has been uh, woof. Man, it has not been an enjoyable, fun dozen years of counter-racist work. But again, hopefully we've helped a few folks uh, get a better understanding of what racism is, how it works, and some things that non-white people, victims of racism can and should be doing to solve this problem. Uh, To invest, you can hit the blog racism-notes.blogspot.com. Dot com. I will have to collate so there'll be a new post uh, with all of the O.J. Simpson uh, book club study session like wow it'll be so rich with information so that can be just in one spot for people who want to check out the O.J. Simpson content and I guess we'll have great addendums because then we'll have when F. Lee Bailey was on the program and Stephen Singular and Patrick J. McKenna uh, and probably some other folks as we stay tuned but That'll be awesome. So that'll be posted uh, right now. The post is Isabel Wilkerson review of case second worst book ever. And even question mark as I feel like Jeffrey Tubin, like this is the most deceptive book I've ever read that should weigh heavily in a system of white supremacy where the primary weapon is deception If you read a book that is rife with deception and it's supposed to be accurate, this is not fiction. This is nonfiction and it is rife with deception. That should weigh heavily on how you evaluate a book. Jeff Tubin, the run of his life, OJ Simpson. The conclusion is this Thursday. Everything we have invested leading up, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Boris Johnson was saying that this week, he was mocking that this week. I can't wait to ask the folks tomorrow about that. He was mocking that this week, saying uh, he couldn't get the gloves on for the vaccine. It was like, that's like O.J. Simpson here, doesn't fit. Triple T, doesn't fit, you must acquit. But for right now, cased, that is the top post on the blog. Isabel Wilkerson, Cowbell. You can check that out when you visit racism-notes.blogspot.com. Racism-notes.blogspot.com. PayPal button is in the top right corner. My cash app is linked there as well. Cash.app forward slash dollar sign. The cows. Again, enormous gratitude to a dozen years of listeners who have kept the cows rolling. Hopefully, again, worthy of the past 12 years uh, or however long you have been listening, calling in to the cows. Uh, also, our wish list at Amazon.com linked under Gusty Renegade. Super, super gratitude and thanks to all of the folks who have nabbed an item or three uh, over the years. Man, oh, man. 
Hopefully we can continue on the counter racist grind if it is constructive. Now, uh, as I said, the list of notes to share uh, most of the time when we have reports, I'll have a thought or two or three. I think pretty much every report like this is one of the lengthier audio segments that we've had for the compensatory call in. And even the people that listen to the archive, you didn't even hear all of the news clips because I had one that I said, man, I shouldn't play this. And then I listened to it and I said, oh yeah, we have to have to play this, but I'm not adding this because that'll just, you can't play everything. So I played it kind of right at the beginning for people who are right here at the beginning, very beginning, 9 p.m. on the dot. You heard it. It was talking about uh, being right down the road from Gusty Renegade in Oregon, uh, a non-white person with a white parent that a Black Lives Matter sign in the front yard and it was vandalized and so they were obstinate they put it back and it was stolen again and this time when it was stolen the perpetrator replaced it with a watermelon with BLM stenciled in the rind how could I not play that I didn't play you only heard it if you were listening like kind of early you heard it Uh, but I man I've been talking about that I said number one I strongly discourage having any sort of Black Lives Matter paraphernalia uh, in your front lawn or in your window seal uh, as a decal on your vehicle. None of that. Uh, in fact, if it was you had a sign that said hashtag RWSWJ or even you spelled it out, replace white supremacy with justice. And none of that, in my view, is constructive. That is not helpful towards solving problems. If anything, it will pro- exactly what happened there, if not worse. It's been tons of those reports, particularly, I would say, over the last year since the Rona, since people have, are outraged and stressed and they got their new firearms. Oh, we'll just shoot at the Negros with the Black Lives Matter sign in the yard. It's been lots of those incidents. No paraphernalia in the yard. Just go about your business. You'll probably be mistreated anyway. Lots of those reports for black people who do not have uh, counter racist paraphernalia on their lawn. Next to the reports that we did here. Uh, I played the segment about hair loss. Talk about another one. Now they did directly mention racism in the segment and talking about the impact on non-white females, black females, specifically the past year of stress strife racism uh, has caused hair loss. I said, Hmm, interesting. I have to see if folks think that's accurate. I do know it's been stressful, so that could be, but then within that, when I'll be thinking like, Hey, should I play this? Should I play this? They went to one of the callers and she said, man, I've lost so much hair. It's enough to make a coon coat. Oh yeah. Let that one ride. Let's let's play that one. And then folks can chime in and see maybe maybe that's accurate because I do know that the last year has been super stressful. Uh, I put the clip about hair loss together with the segment about the impact this past year of being inside lockdown, all the rest of it and, and how that has impacted our bodies. Super important as well, Uh, even though I know a lot of uh, non-white people have not had the great fortune to just say, hunker down and be inside. A lot of us have been forced to still go outside for a variety uh, of reasons. But even with that, the past year and all of the stress, 
uh, and still being restricted to some degree, even if you do are still going out for whatever uh, reasons. Uh, it has had a big impact on lots of people that I even know directly uh, who have talked about having increased anxiety, increased stress, weight gain, uh, difficulty sleeping, just the whole gambit for lots of reasons uh, for so many uh, folks over the last year, so many folks all over the world, uh, parenting and, and all the rest of it within that. So uh, I've just many things that were talked about in that segment posture uh, and even how the last year, because if you're not in an office and you're having to kind of piecemeal a a home office situation and you might not have the most comfortable seating arrangement or a desk because you weren't, you know, prepared to be doing this extensive work from home for so long and how that can impact uh, posture and being sedentary uh, for a long period of time. When I heard that, like I said, I know people directly who you know are dealing, have been struggling uh, with a lot of those issues over the past uh, year and the direct impact on their body. Uh, and I just, I am so thankful uh, to have had yoga come into my existence before all of this. I think it would have uh, just, I think I probably would have gained about 500 pounds uh, because I switched my diet right when I began practicing yoga. So if I wasn't doing yoga, I probably would still be eating, you know, Funyuns, Cheetos, potato chips, all the rest of the drinking sodas, ice cream. Like I would have been, to- I told you, I just got my pie out of the oven vegan non-dairy but yeah i would have just been eating nonsense regular old pie i know i would have gained about 500 pounds like easily like just sitting around over the last year eating nonsense and being stressed and man easily i was just so thankful uh because you don't have to go anywhere you don't have to worry about the gym Uh, And all the rest of it, you can get in a workout and feel good and being an instructor. So I've been able to teach uh, black students, no less, uh, so that they can move around, break a sweat, gain some strength, get some flexibility in. Just that is so important. I think we've talked a lot over the past year about if you can still get outside, do some hiking or some running, that sort of thing, or do some exercise uh, in your residence. Uh, It is super, super important. Self-care is a core component of counter-racism. We've talked about that at all of the retreats. Uh, Let's see. The segment where they talked about the past year and the racism against uh, Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, I thought of Dr. Welsing uh, and she added to the 10 stops. One of her ads to the 10 stops is stop allowing racists to have black people, yellow people, red people and brown people squabbling and in conflict with each other. She said that on this platform many times and on many other platforms. That was one of the first things I thought of. I was reminded of Irie last week when she said they they said uh, someone was practicing racism against Asians. She said they could have just said practicing racism and then went on tax against Asian people, blah, blah, blah. But just practicing racism, white supremacy. That's the system that we're in. I thought of that. That was just last week. Uh, I thought of. I just read a report in Vice magazine. I thought I'm citing that I thought of I've heard and read some people saying that they think this is 
this surge of reports. They said in the segment that we heard that this has not been talked about. I disagree. I've seen many, many reports and we've played a number of them over the past year, not the past month, over the past year, all the way back when President Trump first came out and the, 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 it comes from China and the Kung flu and all of that in March of last year. So I totally disagree with that. That is false. Anyway, I've heard a number and seen a number of folks saying that they think this is going to be recalibrated to say that, oh, it's black people engaging in these attacks and black people are attacking Asian people and blah, blah, blah. That could easily happen. Black people get accused of everything. They might even say that O.J. Simpson beat up and chopped up some Asian people. All of that said, I just checked Vice News and they had a report. New New York just had three attacks against Asian Americans in last three days. I scrolled down the picture that they have of one of these perpetrators, he looks very much like a white man. Now, I could be totally wrong, but this for sure is not one where, oh, yes, this is, you know, O.J. Simpson or Lil Wayne or Kanye West. He's upset about the breakup. And is that no, this is clearly someone who would be classified as white, looks very much a melanin deficient male. If this is the guy, even if it wasn't, but if this is the guy, like this is just another white terrorist act of racism, white supremacy, I would categorize it as such. If they're targeting so-called Asian people, fine, add that to it. But yeah, I would just add this. This would be included in our normally weekly roundup of just white people terrorizing, practicing racism. No doubt President Trump and his conduct over the past year would not surprise me at all. If that sort of thing is happening, it should just be pointed out more aspects, more proof of the world, the system that we are trying to solve and get rid of. But I did, they say, even within all of that, they said that Asian people have been the most depressed over the last 12 months. That's the sort of thing where I hit the pause button. Bam. I'm going to need a citation for that. And even once I get the citation, like, Ooh, we're going to have to read this one cover to cover. Don't miss one apostrophe. What kind of study did we do to evaluate this? Like you went around, how even pause right there. Now, what do you mean when you say Asian? Does Kamala Harris count in that? We could stop right there when you make a statement like that. What do you mean exactly? And they even had a pause I was waiting, like, is there a citation? Did somebody do a study? Is this, let us know if it exists. I would love to check it out and do some investigating, but I didn't even hear that. Next, I do not want to hear anything about the Tuskegee syphilis study, experiment, experience for at least like a good year. I am so thankful we read medical apartheid Harriet A. Washington, and we read it five years ago. Like, what does Professor Gris say? Get a late pass. Uh, And we had James H. Jones, who wrote the book, literally, Bad Blood, the Tuskegee Syphilis Experiment in the archives, 2013. He spent two hours and 15 minutes, and we talked about all of this. Is Nurse Rivers a coon? Is she a sellout? And and all the rest of it, and Bill Clinton's lame apology and connecting this to AIDS. In the archives, all of that said, I do not want to hear anything about Tuskegee for like a good year. Like all of this, I feel like has been so lame. Like I have not heard one constructive comment. I would almost say from anyone 
white or non, it would be a strain. I would really have to strain my mind almost every time it has been something absolutely nonsensical, not constructive, uh, a white person, non-white person, everybody. All, every time it's devolved into name calling other black people and making it a very narrow focus where the only name that gets attached to this is a black person, Nurse Rivers, which I found appalling. Uh, no white people get named or indicted in all of this. We get a lame cameo from Bill Clinton, suspected race soldier. Uh, and they confined it exclusively to Tuskegee. We talked about my alma mater, the University of Virginia. Forget what happened in the 20th century. We could have talked about the coon man. Governor of Virginia, medical doctor. He was in med school when all this with the photographs came out. Why not talk about that? Why not talk about what was it? Dr. Uh, Susan Moore. End of 2020 died from COVID-19. She didn't say it was fears about the Tuskegee syphilis experience or any other nonsense. She said it was white people who are in here practicing racism against me at the hospital. That's the problem that I have. Why not just talk about that? Henry, I mean, you can list lots of names, all of these reports and really anyone. I've had people who've sent me emails where black people have been talking about Tuskegee and COVID-19. And again, that oftentimes devolved into name calling and ugh. I'm disgusted with it all. I have a serious, uh, what do they call it? Eyebrow raise. If that's black people's excuse, even though most of the time when I hear black people, they don't seem to have a lot of detail. Like, like I don't bump into black people. Say, Oh yeah. I read James Jones book and I read medical apartheid and blah, 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 blah. Went down to the archives. Like that's generally not what happens, but white people are to blame for that, but whatever. Uh, generally it only gets brought up as black people don't want to get the Rona vaccine because of Tuskegee. I've not heard one report. Why have white people been acting a fool since like the very beginning of this? What's their excuse? It's such a, just all of it. It's such a narrow uh, focus and how it's presented. They don't even use correct words. As I said, they've been calling it Tuskegee uh, experience sometime and other goofy titles. Uh, I'm done with it all. I hope we don't hear any more of these. Really, that's the only reason I've been playing these reports. It's not that I agree with them or anything like that. It's just, wow, let me evaluate. This is so curious. I don't even know if that's a correct descriptor. It's so uh Uh, one, it's saying the same thing consistently I, without repeating what I just said to just consistently locate black people as being suspicious because of this. And we need to go out and do our work to make sure that they take the vaccine while we haven't even addressed the coon man. Yeah, I'll leave it there. Uh, let's see. UVA, I just mentioned my alma mater. I remember them talking about this. We sat out on the lawn for convocation and they talked about, yes the slaves and they had their quarters right over yonder and they pointed to grassy knoll type area out on the field and somebody be like well that is a great introduction I'm ready to roll <laughs> I've heard enough and they, they would do this they would have like casual references I think where one of the upper class dorms is they have a like a small placard when I say small like in the range of 8 by 11 like you know slice of paper type uh, but it would be it was in the middle of like the trees and everything like oh yes this is believed to have been slave quarters where they helped you know construct the the cabins and all that maybe Thomas Jefferson came and did a little raping uh, in this area 
have to go back and visit, see what the new monuments look like. Uh, the snow in Dallas, uh, they had, we did not hear this report, but they did have reports where they talked about uh, a disproportionate number of the people who lost electricity and are having water issues in the Texas area, not just Dallas, uh, are non-white black people. No surprise there at all. Uh, the report we heard, however, they started out, they referenced these as blackouts and you heard the white man said well we call these service interruptions the term blackout has major implications and I thought wow wow <laughs> that's amazing because we're this is like serious you have like thousands of people who are without power and people could be dying like this is the sort of thing that if I did or Mr. Fuller or somebody else talks about the importance of words but like what you and your PC nonsense I am trying to get my electricity back on and we have got people who could die without heating you're out here trying to be PC and doing all that like on one I could I could process that being said and then I also was saying words are important, like absolutely like, and it's always something bad with a blackout. And then they came right back within the same report. And he came with about two minutes later. Cause, and even the, the white man doing the interview, he said, Oh, okay. So service interruptions, like oh, the, what I was saying for the PCG when he, he gets about two minutes later into the report. And he said, uh, it seemed earlier you were suggesting some, some dark possibilities if this problem continues and again words are important if it's going to be where every 30 seconds every 60 seconds it's dark day and black monday nigger friday and black possibility well then yes that should be pointed out and we should stop that and particularly if the converse is going to be white collar crime and that sort of yes yes yeah, people are going to say we we don't want to say congresswoman anymore and congressman. Let's remove the gen. Well, then we f- should for sure remove all of the anti-black references, even when we are talking about life-threatening situations. Because man, nothing is more life-threatening than white supremacy racism. Again, they said it was a disproportionate number of black and non-white people enduring the so-called blackouts and water service interruptions in Texas and other areas. Hope folks in that area are staying warm, safe, man, I can empathize. Let's see the LAPD. They did the Valentine. This will be, that's why I said it was, I could have talked about all the segments. Like I, everything that I played this week had a deep resonance. Uh, with me at least the LAPD they have allegedly been caught sending some sort of meme you take my breath away for Valentine's Day this past weekend with George Floyd's image on it I, in my studies of OJ Simpson I have heard a number of folks some of them victims of racism say, man the LAPD has come such a long way since the days of Mark Furman GED Mark Furman, by the way, has come such a long way. I mean, why they're they're so much more progressive than they were in 1995. Mark Furman, we read, we just heard that part in the Furman tapes. The people in the book club, 
he bragged about the chokehold. We just read that two days ago in Jeff Tubin. He bragged about the choke. I loved it. Oh, he's he said, I think I probably choked out a hundred people. Man, I didn't even think we just read that. He bragged was upset. He said we we had that's in the Furman tapes. He said we had the chokehold, but the niggers went down and complained. That's why I said it is disgraceful. We've been here for 12 years. And if you had asked me what's on the Furman tapes, no idea. Brags about choking niggers. Nostalgia, not just one, not a dozen. I think he said like a hundred. But they've come a long way since then. And uh, you heard in the segment, if they can locate the Mark Furman metaphor who was sharing this, uh, this meme, he will be terminated. That's what they said 25 years ago. Anyway, for this broadcast, no metaphors. If we could be direct, specific with what we would like to say, that would be appreciated. Uh, race soldiers, they are extraordinary uh, at using metaphors to confound, practice deception. They will take two separate entities and insist that they are identical, exactly the same. Frequently, that is not the case at all. Uh, victims, myself included, we've been exposed to this for a long time, more than a dozen years. Uh, and many of us are also still learning as such. We don't have all the logic sometimes to articulate our views. Uh, sometimes we will substitute an analogy metaphor of some sort figure of speech. Frequently that just contributes to more confusion. Uh, if we could make an effort to be precise, exact, specific with what we want to say that would be appreciated I will prompt about the metaphors much obliged if we could take about five minutes to share our thoughts observations that would be great Uh, just make sure that everyone gets at least one chance to speak Uh, and then if you have additional thoughts uh, to add in just make sure that everyone has shared one time uh, and then you can rejoin if you have a question or suggestion to offer. Uh, the number again is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, if you know you're in a noisy area, If you could get to someplace that's somewhat quiet, that would be appreciated just so that we don't have to compete with the unnecessary background noise. Much obliged. I think we might even have a caller from Japan listening in. I'll add him to my line so he can join us as well. Uh, Just one more. I forgot. Make sure that I get in. I was stunned. I'm ignorant, still learning about many things. One thing I learned Prince Marky D and Rush Limbaugh passed this week. I didn't even include that. We could have had easily like two and a half hours uh, of just news segments. Uh, Rush Limbaugh suspected race soldier passed away this week. Uh, prescription drug abuser and all the rest of it. Uh, he died. This Incidentally, he had going back to OJ. We talked about that Thursday, uh, but we uh, did not even recognize Rush Limbaugh passing. Additionally, Prince Marky D of the Fat Boys died this week. I was surprised they put up the obituary. It's like, oh, the Fat Boys are mm, terrible. And I just gave a glance. 
And they said, oh, he died at 52. It's like, 52? Like, whoa, that is crazy. Like, and then I doubled. I was like, wait a minute. Did I look at that wrong? Maybe it said 72, or which would not be much better. But I mean, so then I went back and looked again. They said, 52? Like, gee, like, I think we talked about that last year. We had the uh, clip where they talked about all of these black male uh, hip-hop artists who end up dying at really young ages where it's absolutely dis- like this 52 years old like what is going on white supremacy racism not black male privilege black misandry if you want to be specific but I saw that and I just said wow like 52 and then I was really stunned because I said well how old was he when so I was trying to go back and said oh so I should think of the fat boys as a child group Oh, not in my process. Not that I needed to go back and reevaluate the fat boys, but oh, they're teens. I thought they were adults for some reason. Child group. Okay. Totally different way of thinking about things. But if anything, eating correctly, taking care of your health, very important. 52 years old, disgraceful indictment of the system of white supremacy. Folks who dialed in with commentary, uh, lines should be open. Let's see. Let's see if we have our, our caller uh, in Japan with us first, and then I'll nab the other folks as well. Uh, oh, might have them in. Let's give them a moment to get settled. You, are you with us, sir? Still getting settled in? might still be getting settled in. We'll check again. If you're uh, with us or not able to hear you. Oh, yep. Oh, yep. Got you that time. Got you that I'm sorry. I was, I'm listening online and there's a time delay. So actually two conversations at once, but um, uh, yes, uh, uh, good to hear you. Good, good, good to be heard. For sure. Glad to have you on. Uh, You're joining us from Japan. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Wow. Uh, I've I've been listening to your show, I think now for about a year or so. I've tried to connect a few times, but I'm not so computer savvy, you know, and uh, so I was having trouble, but uh, finally got it through. And so I'm happy to talk to you. Thank you. For sure. I don't know. Folks might have a question or two about how the Rona is proceeding there. Uh, if you want to get settled in uh, and then share your thoughts on what you heard, we can check in with a few of the folks who dialed in. And uh, yeah, I'm sure they might have a question or two. Exactly what the what is going down with the Rona, your side of the world, or other thoughts. Let's see. Uh, some of the folks who dialed in. I guess I'll get Mo in Dallas. Gain. Hope you are warm have water, can flush your toilet, can take a bath. Uh, Hope you and, in fact, your family, friends are are doing as well as can be under the circumstances and hope it gets warm there so that that can, you know, help solve some problems. Uh, Did you have commentary, sir? Uh, Yes, I do. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. All right. Thank you, guys. Uh, Greetings, uh, listeners and callers. Uh, As always, thank you for the program. Uh, I'll address... uh, my uh the the issues in dallas at at the end of my my short spiel if i can um i came in a little behind so i didn't actually get to catch the uh the black lives matter 
uh, paraphernalia on the lawn being being replaced with the watermelon. Um, but I can um, say that I've spoken, I believe, on this program about how I am uh, personally against um, uh, victims of racism, um, having just anything that identifies you as a as a victim of racism in your yard, just because um, you know you 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 could be targeted by anyone who's passing by your home, um, and on a on a more personal level, I've actually had conflicts in my own household, you know, for these things. Um, there there are certain flags and 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 signage that um, that a that a that a cohabitant would like to display, and I had to explain to her the reason why um, that would be potentially dangerous. Yeah, you know. So, um, any victims of racism, please, if you are if you are considering displaying anything, um, just um, be cautious. You know, be conscious of your area uh, that you're in, and also be aware that you don't know who's driving past your home. You know, and just that easily, you can you can end up like literally like with. I'm sorry to say it, but. Uh, a firebomb being thrown through your window. It couldn't, it might not just be a watermelon. Um, as far as the um, hair um, uh, segment, um, I, I noted that um, the uh, trichologist um, said that there may be a couple of things that, that males suffer from that, that could promote hair loss. I want any male that listens to that segment to understand that hair loss is a people problem, you know? So if you, if you consider yourself a person, um, just take, just re-listen to that segment and, um, and understand that stress, you know, diet, like your work, your, your work at home situation, um, all of those can promote your hair loss as well. Um, um, so, I don't want males to think that there are only a couple of reasons that, you know, you can lose your hair. Um, and I'm, I'm speaking from experience with that too. My, um, I have a son who is uh, 11 now and he didn't have hair issues, but what he did have was nerve issues. And it those nerve issues actually um, had him pulling out his hair at one point. You know, so we like me and his mom had to really sit down and talk to him about about you know what he was going through, and as well as nurture our relationship between each other because our child was suffering on some level and we didn't understand it. Um, I also have a, a short list of vitamins that I myself take. Um, I take um, spirulina. I take colloidal silver, uh, powderized kelp ashwagandha, uh, biotin, and castor oil. Like, I do those. Um, and um, and it, it, it's, it's helped with my overall health, um, along with my hair growth. Um, the LAPD and George Floyd, the Valentine, you take my breath away. Uh, when, I, when I heard that, um, I heard of it maybe a week back, actually. Um, and I thought of... Uh, the Ahmaud Aubrey situation, 
about how that vicious, that the video of him being murdered was circulated for months on end um, before it actually was, I guess, leaked, if you would say that, to the general public. Um, and I also noted that I heard the the reporter said that this would promote trust issues in the Los Angeles police, police department. But I noted that there was no real punishment listed or sounded like it was even planned for whoever started this or whoever participated in the circulation of these uh, photos of George Floyd. Just like, in my opinion, there was no real punishment associated with the Ahmaud Arbery murder situation um, or tragedy. I wouldn't say situation, tragedy. As far as Dallas, um, uh, uh, I've noticed, I, I, during this blizzard, Texas would consider this a blizzard. Um, uh, we didn't understand how ill-prepared we were. Like, when it, when it comes to the state of Texas, like, it is usually hot and humid here. So the houses are built, you know, to to conserve cool energy. You know, like we ha- we don't have basements. We have large front windows a lot of the time. So houses aren't really close together. Um, uh, we don't have salt trucks on hand. We don't have sand trucks. You know, because it's not a natural occurrence for us to receive an inch of snow. You know, in any given year, we get we. It's cold here. You know, it gets cold, but it, we don't really get the the winter humidity. So this really, um, like, was just a shock to the system of Texas. Um, I believe there was a hundred and five car pileup on our Interstate thirty five West in Fort Worth, um, and there was video of it, like. Like people in Texas don't have snow tires, like or chains on the tires or anything like that. So you can see like uh, that's several videos on the internet of cars just full blown, full like going sixty miles an hour into a thirty car pileup, and it's just building. You can hear them cracking one after another. Um, me, fortunately, um, I've invested. And a couple of things since the quarantine started, like a uh, purified water fountain system. Uh, I've been stockpiling rice, you know, things like that. Uh, we, we we try to sh- stay stocked on fruit and just a few canned vegetables if we can. Um, so, like, uh, fortunately for me, I didn't, I, I wasn't as hit hit as hard when uh, when it came to this, this short-lived blizzard, which, by the way, is almost completely melted. Um, so, like, Texas should be back um, well, to, I guess, normal functions for the winter soon. Um, but, like, it was still a, it was still a trying issue for me. Um, a lot of my uh, friends live in majority uh, non-white black areas, and they were hit way harder, way harder by this issue than I was. I have, I'm fortunate enough to live within, I think, like a mile from a hospital and three miles from a police station. So I'm on a specific power grid in Texas. So my power 
could not be manipulated because you would run the risk of, of, of shutting down either a hospital or a police station. I'm like sat dead in between them. Uh, but people that don't have the proximity, the proximity to those particular places of uh, operation were not so fortunate. So we've had people freezing. I've, I've invited people over my house to, you know, shower. Um, I lost my heat. Um, there is, uh, there are major, like you can see parasites in the water from pouring them in the glass. So it, it has really been um, a trying issue in Texas and, Texas really was upset at Ted Cruz for flying to Cancun, so upset that he actually flew back and explained that he did it for his kids. And there was an interesting meme floating around um, saying uh, uh, Senator Ted Cruz uh, went to Cancun uh, in support of his children. And And the response to the other portion of that meme says, so we should cross borders to protect our children. And I thought that was in relation to um, the young man out of Grand Prairie who actually, he was 14 at the time, and he murdered a family in a car accident. Um, and he ended up fleeing to Mexico. His name escapes me, and I, I, I don't like that his name escapes me, but it does. Hopefully one of the other callers can remember his name but he murdered a family of four driving drunk. I think he was 13 or 14 and his mother took him to Mexico. It was a, it was a lot like the Kenosha shooting. Um, that's all I have for now. Me, my line. Thank you guys. Much obliged. Uh, Mo in Dallas. Uh, again, hope folks are black self-respect trying to invite some folks in to help out. Hopefully the heat is back and, and all the rest, but yeah, I'd heard lots of, uh, just horrendous things about the uh, water supply in the Texas region. Like, man, <sighs> reminded me of Flint, uh, other folks and other regions, Newark, New Jersey, other regions as well. Uh, other folks who dialed in uh, with a hand up. If you have commentary, line should be open. Proceed. Hello. Yeah, be heard. Uh, Irie in Louisiana. Yes, ma'am. Hotep, how you doing? I know, right, poorly. Um, it's glad you're here um, for another show. And uh, hello to all the people on the line. Uh, I'm trying to figure out if I'm mistaking it for this show or another show, but I think I heard on this show that someone reported or there was a clip of people reporting hearing sirens in Texas. A couple months ago, that sounded like the sirens from um, the Purge. That movie, The Purge. Yep, yep. And that then was this Texas, happened. <laughs> yes. And then this happens. Uh, so I think I don't know. Nothing's coincident. Uh, don't know why that happened, but I would say it's it, it's not a coincidence um, that you know this is happening with the what did he call it the uh, whatever he called the blackout. Um, <laughs> yeah, just interesting. Um, uh, when the uh, 
tri is tri colleges. I've, I've never heard of that until now. I, I, I'm sorry if I got it mixed up when she was um, talking about um, hair loss. Um, I just found it interesting that, um, I mean, it was a good segment, but I found it interesting that um, white people are interested in us losing hair. Um, in general, there's a fascination with our hair. Um, and then also I wondered if part of it was because of them kind of reinforcing, you know, black women being bald or not being able to grow their hair for one reason or another, um, you know, um, but what the doctor was saying is, is true about stress, journaling. Uh, I've been journaling, and um, I found that, you know, it's true when you write stuff down and manifest. Um, I've been journaling about spiritual um, things, uh, discoveries, ponderances, and also about um, economics um, with my business. I started journaling um uh, different things that I was thinking about doing and also um, meetings that I've been having with a, a, a mentor that's pretty successful in business and I've had some success um, since I've been doing that. So I, I think she's correct with journaling. Um, also to relieve stress or, or find your source of stress. And um, she mentioned the DHT. Um, there are supplements uh, anyone can take to block the testosterone that would block, block the, um, you know, the testosterone that blocks the hair follicle from coming out of the scalp. But the important thing is you can take vitamins for your hair, but if you're deficient in other parts of your body, the vitamins or the supplements will go to the deficiency first, which leads me to the segment about overall um, health that they were speaking of and the hair article, you know, it, I, I don't think it's been said enough in these articles about how people that have um, chronic unemployment or underemployment, what their um, food intake is like. I'm sure people aren't really able to make good food choices um, when they don't have enough money or they're not eating enough. And if you're not eating enough, again, whatever you do eat, if it does have any nutritional value, it'll go to a deficiency first before it'll go to your skin and hair. Um, so people, if they can, they just really need to focus on eating as much living foods and, and supplementing if they can afford it as much as possible. Um, Let's see. And and then her talking about hair um, made me think of uh, when I was teaching two years ago, there was a young lady with long locks, long, light brown locks, very pretty. She had um, curled them, kind of looked like the style that the group uh, Chloe and Haley would wear with their locks um, curled on themselves, very pretty. And this uh, white lady walked up to her, oh, my God, your hair is just so long. And she is stroking this young woman. This is Emily, but she's stroking her like an exotic cat. Oh, it's so pretty. It's so long. And I wanted to tell that young lady, please don't let anyone touch your hair. Your hair is an antenna for energy. And it's, it's, you know, I wanted to tell her that, but I didn't get a chance to. And I'm not even sure she would have been receptive, honestly, because I'm more than sure it's not the first time this woman 
put our hands in this lady, young lady's hair. But, um, yeah, it's a lot of um, malnutrition, uh, I'm sure, among uh, non-white people right now. And then the other thing about health with posture, muscle pains and stuff, I tell um, everyone I know, um, especially young people, I say it just like this. If you don't use your body, you'll lose your body. Um, So being sedentary definitely isn't good. People need to stretch. At minimum, they need to stretch, you know, do yoga. I've been doing yoga more since corona uh, was an issue, um, and I find that I have way less problems. But I also notice, and they don't talk about this as a health aspect, for non-white people, and I suspect it's because they know most non-white people can't afford these treatments, but chiro, chiropractic care, I, I believe is an essential part of maintaining your health um, because we can get out of adjustment with our body parts. Um, my right hip is higher than my left, so I have to adjust myself with stretching and yoga, but I also, um, whenever I can't go to a chiropractor to reset the joints, and also massage, and massage most of the time is not covered by your health insurance. And I would, when I was substituting, I would actually substitute like uh, an extra like two or three days a week to be able to afford at least twice a month massage sessions that cost between 100 or $145 for like a 90-minute session because, I mean, I guess 30 minutes could help someone, but to me, I think at least an hour deep tissue massage would be the most therapeutic thing. And like I said, insurance doesn't cover that, but most of the time you have to pay. I had to pay for it. And whenever I went to get a massage, it was all white people in there getting massage. And when I was at the chiropractor, most of the time people would get – adjustments when they were had an accident and, uh, you know, it was part of a lawsuit. But after that, they wouldn't go back. They wouldn't pay for the chiropractic care um, themselves because they couldn't afford it. So I just wanted to add those things. Thank you very much for letting me speak, and have a great evening, everybody. Hotel. Much obliged, Irie. Excellent suggestions about diet, overall health. Glad we've had at least two folks uh, who mentioned that about uh, diet with regards to not just hair health and skin health, but overall health, which I think having that uh, as they call holistic view of health is much more important, more yoga for everybody, more yoga for everybody. Uh, Other folks who dialed in uh, with a hand up, if you have commentary to share line should be open, proceed Uh, five minutes, five minutes, folks can take five minutes. Rob Yard. Rob in California. Yes, sir. Uh, greetings, Gus, the host, callers and listeners. Um, <clears throat> I'm just getting off the plantation, um, so I didn't get a chance to uh, hear the clips. But um, listening to the commentary, I thought it was very interesting that it was a segment surrounding hair today. Um, Workplace 
Can I be heard? Uh, you, 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 we think we, I think we lost you for a bit. You said, I uh, found it interesting that there was a segment about hair and then I didn't hear you for a second. Okay. And then I heard you again. You said workplace and then I didn't hear you. So okay. maybe you want to try it again. So, uh, yes. Uh, so with the, with the segment, um, talking about hair, um, I had a workplace in, uh, I really don't know what to term it, but I had a sort of an awkward interaction at work today <clears throat> surrounding hair. Um, so I've been wearing a afro, um, a pretty pretty nice size afro. And uh, so yesterday I got a haircut, and now I'm wearing a high top fade, and. Uh, few people told me that the haircut looked pretty nice, nice looking haircut. And uh, so I go to work today and um, I was called Will Smith and kid from kid and play. And so in the moment when these, um, when I was called, when I was referred to as these people, I laughed it off and kind of took it as a compliment, right? And um, throughout the workday, watching um, everybody work and just observing the situation, um, I took those comments referring to me as, as those people I took it as um I took it as mistreatment. Um because simply um I haven't been referred to those people before and why not just refer um to my haircut as or to my hair just simply it looks nice or whatever and um looking at and so like the hairstyle that I'm wearing, the high top fade what I noticed is that a lot of the non-white Asian males wear this same style haircut. And I didn't, you know, I started to pick up on that as the day went on. And I, I was looking at their hair as I was thinking about mine. And, you know, my hair is sticking like straight up pointing towards the sky. And their hair is, even though it's in the same style, it's flat, um, you know, it's, you know, um, we don't have the same hair. And um, like Mary Fuller said, hair is just hair. And I found it very interesting that um, people, um made those comments to me and uh i just kind of felt like people were staring at me today throughout the day and um that's all i have right now thanks for listening wow rob in california aka will smith um 
workplace racism Fridays, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Have we had a few of those where they come in and pick which rapper you look like? Tacky every time. Uh, even though he said, if, unless I misheard, he said he first he thought it was a compliment and then had some perhaps more thoughts about it. I love hair is just hair. Uh, that's why I try to give out recommendations, at least for the workplace, uh, in terms of why I talk about outfit, which is not quite hair, although it's kind of close. Uh, but outfits and clothes and things like, hey, just have the same thing. You do not want anything to be said about your clothing at work, like zero conversations about attire. Let's just focus on, you know, the work that we're doing. Uh, it's, it can't even just be, Oh, wow. You got a haircut. Wow. Rob, that looks awesome. Nope. 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 <laughs> oh my gosh. Will Smith is it. Yeah. 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 And he said lots of other folks seem to have this haircut. Like, do they get the same Woof, man, oh man. Workplace racism. Fridays, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Which rapper do you look like? Apparently that's for Black History Month. Which rapper do you look like? Uh, let's see. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up, commentary to share, proceed. Good evening. May I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, good evening, guests. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, callers. Um, Mo in Dallas, uh, just as a refresher, uh, the person you're referring to is uh, Ethan Couch, if you haven't um, figured out the um, the identity of that person. And it's interesting that he actually introduced a new term uh, called affluenza in his defense. So uh, I've, I'm glad you had brought that up. I hope you're doing well. Um, a question for everybody who who dare, who cares to answer. Gus, your the past few programs dealing with the insurrection, and you brought on the the authors. Is as find I find it fascinating. I want to ask if, in terms of which books to read, like I know you read um. You read uh, uh, Mr. Tillman, uh, the, the biography of Mr. Tillman, the bi- um, and the hands of persons unknown was the uh, other author, and then there was another one I wanted to um, to look into. Which one would you, would read it, persons who have read the book? in order to get further understanding of the uh, ideas of this white mob violence, which book would you read first? I'm trying to get a a further understanding of that. And I'll meet my line. Thank you. Uh, Might pull a Dr. Welsing and just say, uh, read them all. Um, Yeah. yeah, I would just I would read them both if you have them both. Um, yeah, they're both pretty good. Like I, I wouldn't even just read them both. It's probably a, a coin toss. I wouldn't really um, prioritize. I didn't prioritize. I think I read the Ben Tillman. We read that in the book club. Uh, ben Tillman and the reconstruction of white supremacy. 
uh, just because I had that book in hand before I got um, Philip Dre's at the hands of persons unknown. But I mean, his book mentions that one, you know, that's what I mean. They're, they're talking about the same uh, period of time. Uh, yeah. It's, there are probably some other, there are lots of, of good books on, uh, rioting. We even read, uh, sundown towns, uh, is a good buried in the bitter water, uh, by Elliot Jaspin. He was a guest in 2010. That's uh, another good, there are lots of, if you're trying to, re- uh, learn about the, the spirit and history of, uh, white mob violence. That's uh, those four very good starts and yeah, just take your pick and, and they self-reference, they reference each other, uh, within that. So yeah, I think have fun. Um, yeah, if you have them already, you will not go wrong. Either one that you start. And if you start with the Ben Tillman one, you'll have an immediate uh, reference. Cause we did the book club on that. So, uh, and then if you go Philip Trey, he was just on the program. So yeah, can't lose either way. Uh, let's see other folks who dialed in. If you have, uh, questions, suggestions, thoughts to share line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Uh, retired firefighter in Florida. Yes, sir. Uh, greetings, uh, Gus. Greetings to everyone. Uh, if anybody uh, wants to get a uh, good example on how uh, uh, gestures that are symbolic uh, can uh, cause more problems uh just uh recall the uh the history of uh two world class athletes who uh raised their fists with gloves on at the uh nineteen sixty eight Olympics and for thirty years or more uh they had trouble with uh employment uh one of one of the uh guys wife uh committed suicide and and uh the uh harassment and terror from that incident contributed to, towards her uh her death uh so it's just something that you really want to think about uh, attempting to do, and it probably won't be worth it. Uh, I'm talking about Tommy Smith and John Carlos, if uh, anyone hasn't guessed it by now. Uh, they're also supposed to be having a, another another uh, documentary on uh, details of their suffering uh at uh after the nineteen sixty eight Olympics that lasted for well over thirty years or more. Uh DCS program. Uh today uh we were uh uh had uh 
three guests that came in and uh, presented to the uh, young fellows. Uh, two of them were attorneys. Uh, one of the attorneys, his name, was, name is uh, Gordon Weeks. He is the uh, chief public defender in Broward County. Uh, he didn't so much talk about uh, his uh, work as a quote-unquote attorney. Uh, he talked about uh, his uh, his own personal life and his attempts to uh, uh gain employment and his school schooling background he uh trained uh he went into his first venture was to uh become a uh airline mechanic uh he's qualified to be a, a mechanic as far as an air, with airplane engines as well as uh uh automobile engines uh and then he uh went to Florida Memorial and uh was qualified to be a uh oh, I had it right on the tip of my tongue. I can't remember exactly <laughs> exactly what uh oh air traffic controller. Yes. He qualified to become an air air traffic controller and then then he went to law school. Uh uh that position is that position uh that he's in is an elected uh elected uh position in Broward County. Uh, before that, he was in charge of the juvenile division uh, as an attorney in Broward County. Uh, and with him was a younger uh, black male who he uh, basically has been encouraging to one day uh, supersede him uh, in that position. And encouraging, uh, encourage the the uh, young fellows to uh, come up with their own ideas and pursue them. Uh, also, we had a uh, a credit a credit uh, score uh, official uh, that she well she comes every year. Uh, her name is uh, Miss Roll, uh, and she. Uh, talk to the uh, fellows about the stock market, uh, having quote unquote good credit, <clears throat> uh, as well as some other financial uh, uh, understandings. Uh, so they want, they would minimize, I put it that way, they'll, so they would minimize the, the, their problems that, want, that, that non-white people have uh, financially. Uh, under a global system of racism and white supremacy and be as prosperous as possible uh, under the circumstances. And uh, so it was pretty, pretty, uh, pretty uh, fruitful day in that light. And uh, thank you for everybody for listening. Thank you. Bravo, bravo, financial literacy and get some folks talking about uh that's uh stem as they call it get some aviators and folks out there studying the the sciences absolutely love it spectacular uh work with the uh young folks retired firefighter in florida um oh and I, i've had a and i've had a bald head for since 1990 <laughs> completely bald <laughs> 
no hair issues there. Right on. Uh, let's see. Uh, other folks who have dialed in, if you have a hand up, star six one. Uh, if we missed you totally, proceed. Can I be heard? Thomas in New York. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, good evening. Um, Chris Markey D. Uh, from the Fat Boys, rest in peace. Uh, one of the gimmick raps at the early inception of hip-hop trying to make its way to the mainstream. Two out of three of the Fat Boys are dead and um, passed away. Um, man, you know, I, I don't have much more to say than that. Uh, black people being accused, I find that they're focusing this um, these accusations on this anti-Asian violence. Um, a lot of it is using black people's pictures or kind of the way they position the news broadcast and things. It it fits into the right in the, the, the log of, you know, the, look what this black person did and look what that black person did. And then here's this crime to an Asian right in that, that, that line. Um, um, in 2020, uh, there was 838 active hate groups that were counted in the United States. 72 alone were in California. Well, um, I don't think too many of these hate groups are targeting Asian people. I know black people aren't, so I don't get it. And, it, and um, they put out the statistics on, in November 2020 on Statistica, uh, for the hate crimes in 2019. So I guess we'll get 2020 numbers in November 2021. But it, number one on the list was black people, 2,391 crimes. And I think that's really undercounted because a lot of things I consider hate crimes, they don't seem to charge white people. With. Uh, and as far as the Asians, it's 215. So, I mean, you're talking about a drastic difference not not that much where I could see the president having to make an executive order about it. I mean, 2,391, uh, I would see an executive order for that. So it just seems like they're doing something, uh, white people, and I'm just watching them with how they position these Asians. Um, I don't know. It's um, the coronavirus. um Man, they're using preachers now to preach the propaganda. Uh, black people need testing. Black people need vaccines. Now they're calling black people on their phones and mandating testing and quarantines because they may have come in contact with a person that tested positive or using their cell phones. They've already done this twice to my wife. So, um, it's you know, it seems to be targeted in black people. That's what I'm seeing from this coronavirus. Um, globalization mandates of course, from the most powerful white people, these blackouts, um, you have a totally energy-independent state like Texas, plenty of natural gas, oil, gasoline, coal. They were forced to keep up with the mandates and convert up to 20% of their power grid to green energy by 2021, green energy being wind, solar, hydro, battery, et cetera. So that 20% freezes over, and the 80% that's left that always has worked, the oil, the coal, the gas, uh, is not enough to supply the rest of the state. So they have to cut off certain parts of the grid to keep it working. And 
this is um what's going to happen in 2025 when that green energy is mandated to be 50% of the grid? What happens when we have a snowstorm then? And it, what happens in Chicago and New York? I mean, where we, it's cold most of the year here. So um, it's big. This green energy thing that they've been pushing um, through this Green New Deal. And five years ago, this wanted to happen in Texas. Uh, but they were forced to take fully, perfectly functioning parts of their grid and convert it to these green energy. And now that green energy freezes over and the rest of the grid is all vulnerable. Um, same thing happened in California when the fires burnt down the, the, the windmills and stuff. And they were, their whole grid had to shut. They have rolling blackouts and brownouts all throughout the state. Um, hair loss, distress, I think it leads to depression. Um, distress is depressing. Um, black people, I see it a lot. Um, I see people either lost a lot of weight or gained a lot of weight. Um, nothing's been open for months here. Um, no school, no work. You're home all day with the people who annoy you the most. You know what I'm saying? Your favorite stores and restaurants are out of business. You know, I mean, prices of everything is going out. That the, the protests and you've seen the guy getting choked to death every day for hours, a whole summer. I mean, this was totally depressing. And um, to, to even talk about um, George Floyd getting choked to death, the LAPD, <laughs> you know, we're talking about the police force that allowed a non-high school graduate to become a lead detective. And, you know, like this, I think that their level of incompetence is second to none. I'll mute my line. Thank you, Gus. Much obliged, Thomas in New York. I'll check in with our uh, caller in Japan before we get to some of our other folks, see if he has any comments to share before we proceed. I saw, I saw, heard a number of reports where they were talking about that. Who is culpable? That was even in the definition for black for the, energy problem uh, in Texas. And I saw where that even became a big talking point this week is green energy, as they call it, to blame. Did the wind turbines, did they freeze up uh, and what have you? I I ended up seeing a number of reports on that this week. Dr. Welsing, check the news. Uh, Newsweek, fact check, is green energy to blame for Texas power outages? A bout of extremely cold weather affecting vast swaths of the United States has left millions of people without power in Texas. According to poweroutages.us, more than 3 million customers had no power as of Wednesday morning, as the state experienced frigid temperatures that were well below freezing in some areas. The claim some conservative commentators and lawmakers have focused their blame for the outages in Texas on the failures of green energy sources such as wind turbines. And it lists a number of folks who gave similar claims, right? Froze over, didn't work, blah, blah, blah. The facts. While some wind turbines have been forced to shut down due to the extreme cold weather, the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, which operates the state's power grid, said Tuesday that failures in natural gas, coal, and nuclear energy systems were the cause of significantly more outages. Dan Woodfin, a senior ERCOT director, said on Tuesday, according to Bloomberg, we've had some issues with pretty much 
every kind of generating capacity in the course of this multi-day event. I'll post the report if folks, but I'd seen many of others. I'd heard many others where they basically said the same thing. Widespread failure, green energy, not the only thing that failed. Seems like lots went wrong deep in the heart of Texas. Uh, Our caller in Japan. Did you have commentary, sir? Um, yeah, I, yes, I, uh, I, uh, you just reminded me that, that, uh, Prince Marky D of the fat boys, uh, just passed this week. And, uh, that I'm very sorry to hear that. I'm actually originally from the same neighborhood, East New York. They grew up just a few blocks down. I had older cousins that went to junior high school with them. Funny thing is, um, they, um, I just watched a video about their, their career when they first started. They won a rap contest when they were, when they were very, very young. They're 13, 14 years old and uh, 15 years old. They weren't so big. They were, they were a little chubby, but they weren't so big. In fact, in the early days, their name wasn't the Fat Boys. It was the Disco 3. Being fat just happened to be what it became a gimmick. I, interviews where they did and the record company promoted this and the song like as you just played the song uh, all you can eat they they got big after they got famous I, I, I don't know how you would classify that you might probably have better words than me I don't know if that's medical terrorism or what but just they were caused to be so big and fat and and you know uh, Buffy who died so many years ago who was the heaviest one and he was the human beatbox, and he became kind of obsolete in the group once they became big mainstream because they had all that radio equipment. And I just, I wonder, you know, I just find it kind of coincidentally, I don't know, odd or that 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 he who kind of, I don't know, would get kind of marginalized within the group, and he became the fattest one, and he died first, and now the other one is just, it's 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 really sad. Um. That that would that but that also uh, the uh, in, you know one thing that stood out in the news uh, reports that you put that you played on uh, uh, with the I saw the video of the 91 year old Asian man who was knocked down and I think he bumped into uh, he fell on some 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 something there on the street like kind of like a bike rack or something and it, it just looked really. It's kind of horrifying to look at, but then, oh, so I've also seen videos of just black people mistreating each other that were just as I don't want to I don't know horrific, extreme things you couldn't believe, and no real big outcry for them. Not to be heartless against the Asians, obviously, you know that's part of my, uh, you know, my family and so on here, but uh, it's just as you and I appreciate. I could really appreciate the uh, the the quote from Dr. Welsing, the addition to the uh, to the ten stops that you know we should all non-white people all should start stop squabbling and fighting uh, amongst each other and against each other. I think it just plays into the hands of white supremacy and just those particular comments. That's that's what really some things that stood out to me from the from the news that I heard today. 
I think everything else, I'm out of the country, so some of those situations, I don't know them as in-depth as other callers, but that's what stood out for me today. For sure. The Grandcestor, Dr. Welsing. Uh, much obliged, our caller uh, in Japan. Uh, other folks uh, who we've missed totally, if you have commentary, proceed. Caller in Florida. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. Um, I was uh, looking at some local reports uh, earlier today, and that term blackout was used uh, also for local protests, and they associated it with Black Lives Matter. Um, Dream Defenders, and I think it was a few other uh, organizations, and that's so important about words and how the term black has been associated with, I guess, uh, for the most part, negativity or something dangerous and violent. Um, And there are still words uh, right at the end of the tunnel, a lot of phrases and metaphors that incorporate darkness being connected to something evil or something that's annoying or agitating. And uh, to go to the segment about the, I guess, the anti-Asian attacks, uh, definitely I think that people of non-white, different non-white groups are being mistreated. Uh, But I, I just don't think that black uh, mistreatment, anti-blackness isn't being uh, focused on enough. And I think once that happens and we have enough understanding of racism, white supremacy, I think uh, just in theory, just in my opinion, we'll be able to focus more on just, uh, as you say, just racism being practiced. Racism is being practiced. But I have also been seeing those reports on uh, where it says Asians being mistreated. And, and as far as the uh, as far as the, the LAPD incident, I thought about uh, I think that's where Christopher Dorner was from, if I remember that story from some years ago. And I know he was talking about the, the issue of racism being practiced toward black people in the uh, surrounding areas, residential areas. And he uh, pretty much uh, carried out an act of violence, murdering some people. And he ended up being killed himself. And that was a tragic situation. Um, There are some other local reports that were made because they've been doing a Black History Month report on black businesses. And they have this, uh, like a vegan pizza uh, business a little up the road in Alachua, Florida, where they have like spinach and tomatoes and uh, like a lot of other vegan ingredients 
on different pieces. So I thought that was interesting. And they showed one earlier today where they have like a a fitness area uh, owned by two black people, black male and black female. Um, other than that, that's pretty much it. And uh, thanks for allowing me to speak. Much obliged uh, caller in Florida. Um, yeah, where they focus attention is important uh, in the system of white supremacy racism uh, that happens on a regular basis. Uh, they generally are not going to focus attention in a very substantive way on, wow, black people being, I guess they might say the Black Lives Matter protests and what have you, but I feel like they generally do a pretty good job of diffusing, diluting even those protests. That's what I've seen the last six. They were effective. We wouldn't have to keep having these problems, these protests and such. Uh, Let's see. Did we miss anybody uh, totally? Anybody that we missed totally? Grant, we'll assume that we grabbed all the folks who uh, dialed in Uh, again. We will be here tomorrow, uh, 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central and 12 noon Pacific, uh, the global Sunday talk on racism. Uh, We will chat it up uh, our folks in different parts of the world, kind of hear what has been taking place with the vaccines and all of that. I guess we had to get one last comment in from our caller uh, in Japan, uh, since it's not super, it's Sunday, uh, afternoon for him what is the situation there currently uh with COVID-19 uh is it a problem lockdowns the vaccine have you been vaccinated just so we can include that in our assessment of all this uh thank you um the the vaccine I I I am personally I don't have too much uh knowledge about what the vaccine program is um but as far as the COVID-19, it's nowhere near like what's going on and what, what, what I hear about what's going on in America, which is almost like it's, and we're on, we've been on, a, this is our second lockdown. We had a, a kind of a more serious one at the, late last summer where kids were home from school and everything. And uh, that was a lot more serious. This one just started, I believe, late December. And uh, and it was supposed to be one month, and then I think they uh, then they extended it for another month. I think it's ending the first week of uh, March, uh, but it's not even really so much of a lockdown. It's mostly just that after eight o'clock at night, no restaurants are open, and a lot of things are closing. Uh, gyms are closing. Uh, you know, any 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 place where people would congregate pretty much closes after eight o'clock. Um, uh, that's really almost the extent. I, I, you don't. You, uh, what's one thing that's big in Japan? Like uh, business meetings. Uh, there's a lot of everything's moving to online um, business meetings. Where in Japan, you know, they kind of do their business meetings over meals. That's um, that's been curtailed. Also, you know, to be honest, they do a lot of their business meetings in karaoke joints. So uh, you know in the company of night workers, so to speak. Um, That's been curtailed. And also the prostitution business, which is 
technically illegal, but sort of, I don't know, semi-legal. That's also, they're trying to control that um, because that that's, uh, uh, you can't track that. The, the clusters and things like that, they move, it's kind of so fluid. That um, schools are open still, um, but, and everything's pretty much, what's really big here, I think, uh, really, I, I'm not an expert medically at all, but I think like everyone just is masked up all the time. That's one really big thing. Uh, the hand washing, in a sense, they, there's a little bottle of a little like a little spritzer bottle of alcohol in the doorway of every single shop you go to, anywhere you go, not just shops, but any building, anything that people enter into, is you're gonna you, you some people are gonna spray their hands, you get a little spritz of alcohol, rub your palms together, enter. Let's say it's a supermarket. You go do your shopping. You come out. You spritz your hand again, and then you know you you keep it moving. That's all day, every day, everywhere you go. Everyone is masked up, um, and I don't know Japanese people. Uh, it's it, they don't get so close to each other anyway. I think uh, when it's crowded, yeah, but you know there's not a lot. It's not a hugging culture like hugging and kissing and being all close and touching people up. You know you bow from a slight distance. A lot so maybe I, that's what I think the really the, the 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 masking and the hand washing the hand sanitizing all day and most people aren't uh, most people I think are following the basic social distancing thing we had like a New Year's celebration here most of the family didn't come and people are just traveling less but other than that the lockdown is not like a serious lockdown like China or anything it's, but uh, so the situation is not so bad. Obviously, old people are are, are hit a lot harder. Um, that's where most of the deaths are. But other than that, it's not really so like epidemic proportions like what we read about in the states. Yeah, that's about it. Fascinating. Much obliged for the uh, update. We'll add that for tomorrow when we check in with our folks in different parts of the world uh, to kind of get an update and hopefully that can help folks kind of make some sense of what we've experienced for the past uh, year. Uh, we will rest there uh, until tomorrow, 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central, 12 noon Pacific global Sunday talk on racism. Uh, much obliged for all the folks joining us uh, this Saturday evening, well, Saturday evening, Sunday afternoon. I uh, hope it has been worthy of your time and energy uh, with that sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. We spent a lot of time talking about, you know, trying to uh, eat correctly, uh, taking care of oneself. That involves a lot, including sobriety, uh, drink more water, super important. Anyway, in addition to being sober, uh, let's hunker down. Uh, if you got to go out, especially if you're in the U.S. where there are lots of armed whites, uh, if you have to go out, uh, be very alert uh, to what's happening around you. If it looks like uh, people are being hostile, anybody, white person, non-white person, uh, they're being rowdy, loud, <laughs> exit. We are super risk averse uh, in 2021. Uh no need to be in verbal altercations, to be close, as we just heard, to be all in close proximity uh, to someone. You don't know if this person is armed. You don't know if they have a group of folks with them who are also armed. 
if you did not leave your residence prepared to kill and die exit get out of there you can call enforcement officials as you leave Uh, all of that said if you're going out you are sober driver or passenger you are buckled Uh, if you're driving you are not on the cell phone Uh, again we want to do the small things that we can to minimize contact with the mark ged Furmans of the known universe and we also need to be alert can't be paying attention to what's happening around us if you're texting and driving that said creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person no name calling super simple in the 10 stops not calling other black people any non-white people by any name other than what they wish to be called minimize conflict with other non-white people for sure cow signing out we will be here in about 12 hours replace white supremacy with justice thank you for tuning in sayonara nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim brother you're a victim i'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning shut up the man has programmed my conditioning Uh even my conditioning has been conditioned judy was boring hello then judy discovered chumbacasino.com it's my little escape now judy's the life of the party oh baby mama's bringing home the bacon whoa take it easy judy The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.